welcome to the next episode of Ranked. We're going to be doing something a little unconventional for the Pop Topic podcast. We are going to be having a few people joining me throughout the entire runtime. I am by myself right now, but that is only temporarily. I'm going to be having people come in to let me know and to let the audience know what their favorite film of 2018 was. So Pop Topic started in 2019. We've done film rankings for every year since this podcast has started, which is 2019, 2020, 2021. We are currently working on watching films for the big 2022 podcast in a few months' time. But I kind of figured during the off months, during the summer and September and October, it gets a little quieter for me. And I just thought it was a perfect opportunity to start going back to the years that we haven't done yet. Starting with 2018, what are the best films that that year has had to offer? Uh, And that way we can still look back at each year and kind of reflect on what films have stood the test of time. It's only been a few years since 2018, but as we go through a lot of these years, it'll start getting further and further away. We can reflect on them more. And, you know, it's just a good excuse to talk about years of fantastic films. You know, as much as I like to hate on the bad movies, it's more important to praise the good ones. And this is a great opportunity to go over movies that may have been overlooked that may have been forgotten. Of course, we do have some big films on this list with some guests that people have obviously heard of. People obviously still remember. But, you know, there, there's some gems in here. There's some movies here that people have not really discussed enough that aren't really as beloved as maybe they should be. And this is just a good opportunity to kind of reflect on some of these movies. So sit back, take this ride with me. I'm going to go through each guest and the movie of their choice one at a time. And hopefully there's a movie or two that you haven't checked out yet that this might encourage you to go check these out. And if you want to come on the 2017 podcast or 2016, whatever year I'll eventually discuss, you could reach out to me and let me know because I'd love to have more people on and more excuses to talk about the great films that we have received over the last few decades. So enjoy. To kick off the best of 2018 series, we are going to be discussing one film that, you know, uh, must be somewhat successful since they made a sequel for it last year. And of course, we have our old Pop Topic co-host, Welling. How have you been? Oh, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been okay. You know, living life, watching movies, that kind of jazz. That's that's been my whole life, living life, watching movies. That's my motto. That's your motto. I think you need to get it tattooed. Uh, that'd be embarrassing if my one and only tattoo is I watch movies. That'd be depressing. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I'll get you like stupidly drunk one night. Yeah, yeah, they'll go drag you to a tattoo place. Yeah, I would love to see my wife's reaction when I come home with a tattoo. <laughs> oh, that's right. How, so you've been used to calling her your wife yet? Uh. I'm used to saying it. It's weird when she calls me her husband. That, that, that's the weird one. Uh, you know, me saying it's fine, but when she says it, I'm like, oh my God, what are we talking about? I guess, <laughs> I guess she's... Yeah, hearing the word husband is, is a little more different than hearing the word wife. But you know, I guess it's just me. Fair enough. So I guess I didn't even mention the movie that we are going to be discussing here, but uh, you know, of all the 2018 films, you could have picked, you picked A Quiet Place. Uh, 
Why was this the film you picked? Why was this the one that you wanted to discuss for 2018? Is this your favorite film of the year? Um, it's I, off the top of my head. Uh, A Quiet Place in 2018 was probably one of the best, if not the best movies of 2018. That's just me, though. I, I'm, I'm sure other people got their deferring. I'm not going to hate on them for it. Yeah, everyone's allowed to have their wrong opinion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I would say A Quiet Place was the best movie experience for me for 2018. Uh, I oh, think, yeah, I think watching this in the theater, uh, this is one of those rare movies that you need to see in a theater. Yeah, if I remember, we, uh, we saw it together. In the- uh, I, think, no, I think I saw it with our old roommate, Tristan. I don't know if you were there. Am I crazy? I feel like I was there. I, you know, I, I could be wrong. I, I'm not 100%. You could have been. You could have been. We went to, what was it? Uh, in City Center, they have like a little movie theater that is in the mall. And we went to that one because it was near our dorms because we were living in dorms then. Uh, and I remember Tristan and I went to go watch it there. And I, I think that was the one and only time I went to that theater because I thought, what an ugly looking theater this is. <laughs> it was not the best quality. I probably could have went to a better theater to watch A Quiet Place, but uh, it still worked. It still worked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also remember watching, seeing the Isle of Dogs poster back in 2018 and thinking, that's one ugly looking poster. I don't know if I ever want to see that movie. And, and I was wrong. It's, it's a good movie, but. Remember, oh, because remember it was from a certain director that you enjoy. Yeah, that's true. You know, I'm a little biased now, but in 2018 I wasn't, and I guess it wasn't a big fan of the poster. Uh, it could be because I'm not a huge dog fan. That might have been the reason, but I remember the movie and I remember that poster. That that's my theater experience. But I think what makes this film so effective is the use of silence. I think it's so cool how the movie in a theater you're sitting with about. 50 other people and it's just dead fucking silent the entire time it's uh pretty much the anti-marvel film you know everybody's yelling at every one word in that film everyone's like oh my gosh they just said spider-man uh but in quiet place like there's not a single fucking noise like if someone's chewing on popcorn everyone turns around and gives them a dirty look like what the fuck are you doing there's a monster out there you fucko uh nobody was talking uh yeah yeah you could definitely hear like a pin drop in the movie theater that's for sure um it's it's just something so unique i don't think it's something that i've ever really seen before the use of just quiet to draw those intense horrific scenes is it it's something quite impressive and i don't think we'll see anything quite unique like it for a while the use of silence is really good, especially in a theater. I was worried this movie wouldn't age well. I was a little worried, well, outside of the theater, is it any good? I, I do own this movie because I have rewatched it once or twice since then. And I, was, I would say it still holds up. I would say this movie's still really good. I don't think it's as good as watching it in the theater. Like, it's a significant decline in quality. But it's still effective in using the silence where I'm still sitting at home and it's dead silent. You know, my phone's turned off. Uh, my wife's in the other room, so she can't talk to me during it. Like, it's just pure silence. Uh, this is me in the moment. That's uh, really good at sucking you in. So what was your first experience with this film, Alex? Uh, where, where, did you remember specifically watching this in the theater? 
for me, horror movies, they can very, be very hit or miss. I'm, I'm very, very picky when it comes to horror movies. I normally won't like the, um, the paranormal type horror movies or stuff like that. Uh, you know, stuff with like Satanism, demons, plenty of jump scares, like that, that, that kind of stuff is like not too great with it. Now, there was another movie that came out this year that had a lot of those elements that I actually did quite enjoy, but uh, obviously we're not here talking about that one. Uh, but A Quiet Place, it had that, it had that perfect like monster movie feel. And I, I am all for monster movies. If, if you know me particularly well, Alien is my favorite movie of all time. And that's single-handedly the best, like, monster creature horror movie of all time. And this used that element, like, quite perfectly. The fact that the aliens use sound as a way to hunt their, uh, hunt their prey. And it, it, just, it just built up the atmosphere so well. All the little things they did in this movie, just to kind of, like, build up the eventual reveal, uh, reveal of these creatures um it, it was quite impressive yeah i'm kind of a sucker for monster flicks as well i just watched the entire predator series a week or so ago just monster flicks they're just they're the best type of horror it's fun to have like some creepy over-the-top creature hunting people down i i agree with you uh that's way more exciting to me than some pop-out ghost from a corner or something you know it's it's fine but uh, yeah i'm more of a sucker for these creatures landing on earth and hunting us all that's way more exciting for me so maybe that's why quiet place works really well if it was some kind of evil spirit that you got to be quiet around it wouldn't be as exciting having these redesigned creatures that open up their like mouths almost kind of like uh, the demigorgons from stranger things uh, that weird like naturalistic feel of these creatures is really fun uh i, I think the designs on them are really cool i also like that they use them not that often uh, most of the movie is just dead air and just uh absolute silence you don't even really see the creatures you can kind of just feel their presence i feel like that's the best way to use them the quiet place too they kind of show them a little too much uh, i kind of like the dead air I, I guess you are a huge alien fan it is kind of like that where a lot of the movie is just dead air and just open spaces just still shots to make us feel anxiety that the creature's nearby or trying to see if we can spot its presence somewhere uh they both kind of have that same kind of style that they're going for yeah yeah and yet you you get enough of it to keep you entertained but again it's not over saturated with it which i like i like something hiding in the corner not you're not really sure when it's gonna like pop out but when it does it's always a great reveal so Alex, I'm going to have you give a 30-second explanation slash, slash pitch for any listeners out there that haven't seen this movie yet to kind of let them know what it's about and maybe convince them to go check it out. Uh, what, what is A Quiet Place? Um, I think the best way I could describe A Quiet Place, it is a revolutionized monster horror movie. Uh, a Quiet Place... Uh, takes place in uh, dystopian America uh, just after alien creatures uh, land on Earth, and um, they they have the uh, they're blind, but they have the unique sense of hunting with uh, their ears. They have uh, extreme uh, 
uh, extremely good hearing, and that's how they used to used to hunt. And A Quiet Place takes place about a year after uh, Aliens Land, and it just shows how a family looks to survive in this new post-apocalyptic world. And it's it's quite an interesting uh, tale of all the different ways they go about keeping quiet and eventually figuring out the way to defeat this threat in the world. It's lots of lots of intense scenes and overall just such a great movie experience. Yeah, you're definitely a big horror guy. You do love Alien. Uh, I I can see horror being a genre you return to a lot too. You're that kind of guy, well dog. But uh, would you say this is one of your favorite horror films of the 2010s? Is there some others that really stand out for you? Oh damn! Well, I gotta I gotta review the 2010s to give you a clear picture. Uh, like I said, there was another horror movie that came out in 2018 that was uh, pretty damn good. Uh, Hereditary came out this year, and I thought that was. Um, a pretty well done horror movie, especially since that falls more on the demonic, yeah, it, creepy kind of scale. Uh, and that one was that one was pretty damn good. Um, yeah, that's also on this podcast, uh, Hereditary. You know, uh, stay yeah, tuned for the listeners. Would, I kind of think it would be. Um, you know, there was a couple in. Um, I I don't know. Would you consider Would you consider a Get Out a horror movie? Yeah, Get Out would be classified as horror. Uh, it's definitely the gray area. It's, it's essentially just a psychological thriller, or I guess a socio-thriller, but, you know. Yeah. So, it so Jordan, both of Jordan Peele's movies in the 2010s, Get Out and Us, I think are uh, great standouts in, in the horror genre. Uh, I think Jordan Peele's just a masterclass in horror movies. Um, the first chapter of It, was also kind of a revolutionary horror movie for the 2010s. Uh, one that comes to the top of my head anyways. I think Split... It would, Split would probably be a horror movie, and I thought Split was a rather well-done horror movie as well. You know, there, there's been a few of them lying around, but I think if, if I had to go to the top of my head, A Quiet Place probably falls in the top three for me. Yeah. yeah, Quiet Place is, is up there for me as well. It's just one of those horror films that just works really well, and it's unique. You know, Hereditary is really, really good. But, you know, Hereditary is still, like, a, you know, it's like a cult demon film. Like, it's still classified with a lot of other horror films. Quiet Place is just so unique with just its sound design, which it did not get an award for for the Oscars. It got nominated, I guess, you know. I guess that's good. But, you know, it, it really does feel like an achievement in sound. Well, considering horror movies tend to get boned at the Oscars, the fact that it got nominated is pretty good. Yeah, I should say something. Tony Collette didn't even get nominated for Hereditary, so they, they just don't like horror films. Oh, absolutely not. But that, that, that's their problem, not ours. Exactly. Uh, if the Oscars was doing a Best of 2018 podcast, uh, neither of those movies would be on it. Unbelievable. They'd have Green Book on this podcast instead. Fuck, I, did Green Book even come out this year? Yeah, 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 it's the same year. Oh, dang. Yeah. <laughs> That's how forgettable that one yeah. was. Uh, yeah, no one picked that movie on this list. Uh, that, that will not be on the podcast. Uh, a little heads yeah. up for everybody. I could, probably take, I could probably take a solid guess in guessing all ten movies. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do that off podcast. Uh, I would like to see your guess, but you know, I'll keep it a little surprise for the viewers. I won't say anything for that. So, Alex, for Quiet Place, what would be your favorite scene? 
my favorite scene um oh that's a tough one because there's such there's like so many good ones you know it's it's hard to figure out a standout scene in this movie because there were so many good ones um i'd have to say my favorite scene in the movie would have to be it happened in the middle of the movie surprisingly it was that scene where uh, the father and son, they're walking through the woods and they come across the old man and his, the old man's wife had just been killed. And there was just something so somber and yet terrifying about the whole scene. It was like a mix of like, oh shit, and then just, oh shit, and then, oh shit. That is a good scene. I think, for me, I think the movie starts really strong i think the first 10 minutes is the best part of the movie the opening act is phenomenal yeah which i I guess i don't know what that says about the whole movie as a whole that you know i I guess you know you only have to watch the first 15 minutes and you you saw the peak baby because man when they're going to the store to get some supplies and then when the kid picks up the the toy rocket uh first of all what an absolute idiot i don't know what he was doing but man when that thing makes noise like that entire theater it was only 10 minutes in but our theater like just had an audible gasp like fuck this is gonna yeah. suck oh it was that brutal was, that was the biggest oh shit moment of the movie yeah yeah that's when you're like oh shit's getting real here um and you know it's, it, the movie doesn't have a lot of body count uh because it's pretty much just focusing on the one family so to start off with a kill instantly when pretty much there's no other kills for the rest of the film uh you know that was uh, quite an intro to this world, which I think is good. I think you need a really strong intro. Yeah, and I think it also introduced probably one of the strongest aspects of the movie. For those that haven't seen it, they have a character uh, played by an actress who is actually deaf. They, they hired a, a deaf actress to play a character in this. And they introduced that aspect pretty well in that opening scene because you have the kid that puts uh, that turns on the rocket and all you see behind her is the lights of the rocket going off and she's not noticing a thing and it plays so well in that scene yeah she's a huge part of the film i'm glad you mentioned that because we almost missed mentioning her in the entire segment here that having this deaf actress and this deaf character is really really exciting because they can play into the sound aspect a lot with that where there's actual noise going on but she can't notice it and obviously her using this hearing aid is a huge you know tool later in this movie so she kind of she kind of comes full circle as this huge savior for the family uh, she works really well i really like her in the movie uh she's really one of the only things i really like about the second one i think the you know the sequels not nearly as strong, um, but but she's really the standout in that one as well. I think she's really good in these movies. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, I also want to point out, this was a directorial debut for John Krasinski, and just what a phenomenal job for a directorial debut. I don't think quite as good as Jordan Peele did with his debut, but phenomenal, and, and all the same. Yeah, really good debut. I feel like... That's something you get a lot in these last few years, 2017, 2018, uh, quite a few in 2020. A lot of great directorial debuts from up-and-coming directors, uh, and, and this is definitely one of them. I feel like he's really, really good at just 
directing the style of using sound as the main source of dialogue in this movie. Uh, and, and just to have a director that hasn't even done a film before, to have that as his first task, it's pretty impressive. Honestly, anything John Krasinski does, you know, uh, I do love good old Jim from The Office, but I'm more excited to see him take on some directing tasks now. He, he's really good. You know, no Jordan Peele, but you know, he's, uh, it's hard to compare. He, he's, he's good on his own. No, absolutely. But yeah, no, it was quite phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it quite a few times since uh, first watching it, and it holds up. It's one of the best parts. It, it, it holds up as just a great movie. Yeah, and this is Ari Aster's first year, too. Uh, I guess the two best horror films of the year from two up-and-coming directors. There you go. Oh, and they're still knocking it out of the park today. That is A Quiet Place. Anything else you wanted to say about this film, Alex? Seriously, guys, it, even if you're not a fan of horror, go watch this movie. It is, it is revolutionary. It, it is something that um, you won't regret seeing. It's, it's something that you just need to experience. There's really nothing that's been made like it. And again, I don't think there's going to be anything made like it quite revolutionizing the way that it is for quite a long time. So yeah, please go see it. Yeah, uh, this is definitely a film that I think most people have already checked out. If you haven't, I am so sorry you did not see this in theaters. Your life is pretty depressing. But even so, you should definitely still check this one out. This is easily one of the most unique and exciting films, especially for a blockbuster uh, for 2018. I think this was a pretty strong film. All right, it was great to have you on Welling. We will see you for 2017. You bet. And for our next film up for discussion, we have a reoccurring guest who is always here to discuss animated films, whether it be Studio Ghibli, Pixar, or Illumination. Uh, and this time around, we are not here to discuss Spider-Verse or Ralph Breaks the Internet. We are here to discuss Game Night with Trex. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Perfect. So... What is it about Game Night that made you want to discuss it on a podcast? You know, there's so many great animated films, you know, so many not so great animated films, but you kind of wanted to discuss something else here, and that was this underrated comedy. Well, what was it that made you want to talk about it today? For one, I forgot that Dogs exists. Um, but two, I just think that compared to all the other popular and well received films from 2018, you know, they're all like really good, but they all sort of have sort of a, a name behind them, like Spider Verse or Infinity War or something like Isle of Dogs or something. They all, um, you either expect them to be good or, you know, they're just like the fun blockbuster type stuff. And the reason I chose Game Night was because it generally came out of nowhere and just sort of surprised everyone with it being really quality. Like, I when I saw the, the trailers for this film originally, I didn't think much of it because it just, it looked like every other studio comedy, you know, with, like, cheap jokes, celebrities. And then, like, my family decided to watch it because we're all huge Arrested Development fans. And we just ended up really loving it because everything in it just sort of came together if i if i could equate it to anything it almost felt like 
an Edgar Wright movie with how just every element comes together to just make it very comedic, but also the story is really good. The music's really good. The cinematography is really good. And just, it all just creates a one of a kind experience. Yeah. Edgar Wright's a good comparison where it feels naturally chaotic. Like the entire movie really feels like it's constantly go, 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 but it never kind of gets bogged down or overwhelmed by its own story. It feels very clean cut, but chaotic. So it kind of does have that right style, especially something like Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead. Like Hot Fuzz is like my favorite, my favorite movie of all time. Uh, and yeah, I'm generally kind of a fan of these types of, you know, comedies. Uh, I can, it, it can be done wrong. Uh, like what I mean by that is sort of unconventional comedies um, where they're just very fast paced and they, are just constant chaos, but there's a sort of a method to the madness. Uh, like the other day I watched uh, Bullet Train. Have you seen that one? I have not yet. It's like, it's okay, but it, it you can tell it's trying to be a lot like, you know, Game Night or uh, an Edgar Wright film, but you just, it feels so manufactured. It feels very, you can see the strings of, you can see like, just how everything is written and it sort of loses that immersion but here in game night it's just it feels like a rhythm right like the filmmakers are just constantly hitting you with all of these jokes and beats at just the right rhythm to just grab your attention for throughout the whole thing yeah i definitely get that vibe that yeah, this is definitely one of those comedies that gets you by surprise. I feel like a lot of well-regarded comedies, whether it be The Hangover or I feel like Where the Millers was, you know, pretty popular with casual audiences in 2016, I believe was the year it came out. Uh, but I feel like Game Nights, nobody talked about it. I feel like it came out and disappeared. And so it kind of instantly got that stigma for me of just being a normal comedy. You know, like one of those dumb comedies you throw on and you forget about it because it's kind of forgotten. And that's kind of what most comedies are. When you don't hear about them, you kind of just assume, okay, these are probably pretty dumb. Like this movie really could have turned out to be like another 2018 film I just watched for fun yesterday, Tag. It, it could have just been like that. It could have just been a really dumb idea of adults playing games, which is literally just what Tag is. But it's not. This film is super fun, really well written, and it's just a genuinely fun time, especially with the performances. I think uh, Jason Bateman, uh, you know, with Arrested Development fame and Rachel Adams are both really fun. I mean, I think the best performance in the movie, for me at least, got to be Jesse Plemons as the <laughs> as the cop guy. He's just creeping on them the whole time. And he, you can tell he, de he desperately wants to be involved with the the game nights, uh, and then of course at the end it's revealed that he's been orchestrating the whole thing. Yeah, it, Jesse Clemens is really, really fun. I really love the scene at the very beginning when they're about to walk into their house and he's there by the mail and he's explaining, like, this is our first intro to Jesse Clemens, and it's the best intro to maybe a comedic character of all time, where he's just standing by the mailbox and he's explained to them, I like to get my mail late because some people go early and the mail's not there yet. And I wouldn't want to waste that valuable mail walking time. I always come later to make sure they're there on time. Uh, Jesse Plummins is fantastic. I especially love uh, the, the credit sequence yes. where the camera is just like going through his, 
his uh, or heavily orchestrated plan where it's like he would map out he, how he walked to the mailbox or like I think during that scene there's like a line where he's like oh you bought a lot of Tostitos yeah. uh, just for the two of you and then he's like oh it's a three for one deal but then you see the note he where he contacted the grocery store to confirm that he was lying I was hoping you would mention that I absolutely love the end credit where has a little notepad that he confirmed with the grocery store that they don't have a three for one deal for chips. Hilarious. Which, to be fair, uh, Jason should have just said it's uh, buy two, get one free. A three for one? That, that's insane. He even points that out. He's like, how could, they, how could that possibly be profitable for Tostitos? <laughs> how is that profitable for Tostitos? Yeah, it's really not. Uh, Jason needed up his lying game there. He might be good at games, but he's not good at lying. Yeah. And I think that's just one of the another reason I love the film is it's there's so it's so detail oriented. Like even in that credit sequence, like you have the the stereotypical like dumb character where they're showing like all of the the stuff that identifies them in the credits, and you can see that the dumb guy he's got like a Harvard student ID card, and yeah. just like little details like that just really make it make you think like wow these guys really care like or like how every time they enter a scene it, they look like pieces on a board game yeah that's one of my favorite details i really really love how the start to every scene is like a wide shot and the wide shot makes the scenery around them look like it's part of a board and they're pieces in this game like that framing for the beginning of each shot is really fun and really really clever I think the cinematography in general is definitely a highlight because, you know, obviously we keep going back to the whole standard comedy thing, but like most standard comedies don't give a crap about that stuff because it's all about the jokes. But here they do stuff like the board game zoom ins. They do. I mean, everyone points to the egg scene right? Uh, where they're just tossing around the mansion. Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously one of the go to examples of cinematography in this film and really just a great example of some fantastic scenes in this movie would you say that's your favorite scene what would be your favorite from the film would it be the egg scene i feel like that's everyone's go-to that's a tough one there, there's a few in contention one is like the the end credit scene um maybe like the final end credit scene the egg scene's definitely up there i think Honestly, what might be my favorite scene uh, is just when he's trying to bribe the lady uh, to give him the clue. Oh, yeah. And he's just sliding like 17 bucks across the table. Yeah, just little stuff like that I really love. What about you? I think my favorite scene, the egg scene has to be my second favorite. I do really enjoy that scene. It's just so exciting. It's definitely like the, you know, the big climax of the movie it's very exciting you get the adrenaline pumping with all these rich guys trying to hunt them down with this egg in the giant mansion uh it's so much fun but i think my favorite scene has to be pretty early on when they go into the bar and they realize that this isn't an actual escape room like they are kind of playing around the gun and like the guys that actually kidnapped chandler are like on the floor and it's so much fun how they think that this is just a game and they're kind of playing around making goofy jokes and they're actually talking to real criminals like i, I don't know something about that is really funny to me 
Uh, Rachel Adams was so good in that scene oh, she's where she's incredible. just flaunting the gun around. She doesn't think it's real, but they, I mean, obviously they do. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah. And then when they go in, they take the bag off of Chandler. All of that is so much fun. Uh, I think that's really, really enjoyable. The first 25 or so minutes lead up to that moment, and it really pays off. Uh, them finally realizing this is reality. I really like that. Uh, for those that haven't seen the film before but are tuning in here, Trex, want to give them a quick 30 second explanation about what it's about. Maybe a reason why they should check this film out since, you know, probably people have, you know, people have heard of Spider-Verse, but they might not have heard of Game Night. Because I feel like when we usually talk about films, people know what films we're talking about uh, and need no explanation. But if I were to summarize this movie, I guess it's just back of the DVD type description. These people are like really into playing games on Game Night. The like uh, murder mystery party thing turns out to be real or so it seems so then they're just trying to race around town to save everybody and there's all these like inner workings but like it's it's for first and foremost a really funny comedy but like like we've been saying it's a it's a standard comedy but you just get a lot more out of it right the jokes are funnier than normal like they normally are the cinematography is way better than it has any right to be the music like the soundtrack is also really solid. I forgot to mention that. And like I said, if you like Edgar Wright or um, another comparison I thought of was like James Gunn, I think like you're really going to enjoy this movie. Like you, because again, a lot of people didn't see it. Uh, so definitely check it out. Yeah, my go-to definition for this film, because I was, I, I told my coworkers I was checking this out when I rewatched it this week. And they were obviously wondering what the hell does game night even mean? And my description for it quickly was just that one scene very early on where they all think they're just about to start this escape room, a murder mystery type game in the house. And a bunch of robbers come in and start attacking one of them. And everyone else is like eating cheese on the platter going, oh yeah, their acting's pretty good. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a good job, I guess. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Like, I'm like, sure, why not? Like, they're eating cheese, just, like, commenting on how bad their acting is while someone's actually getting beaten up in the kitchen. Like, that's just the permanent encapsulation of this movie where everything in this film is essentially real. Like, they're actually getting people kidnapped. There's actual death. There's so much chaos going on. But at the core of the film, it's just some dudes eating cheese. Like, it's just a comedy. It's just pure fun. Uh, ignorance is bliss in this movie. I feel like it's a lot of putting the pieces together. Can you figure out what's going on before the actual main characters do? There's times where you feel like you're ahead of them. Like obviously the first 30 minutes, we know this is reality and they don't. So we kind of have a one up on them, but later on they kind of start piecing stuff together before the audience does. So it's a whole lot of cat and mouse in the movie and as an audience member. And I think that's what makes it fun. Pretty darn good encapsulation. <laughs> yeah. So what was your first experience with this film? I didn't see it until, I want to say, 2020, maybe 2021. It's, it's pretty recent for me. This is my second time watching it this week. Uh, did you watch it in 2018 uh, when it first came out, or did you kind of watch it later like I did? I just remember watching it at my uncle's house uh, with my family and trying to date that back. It would either be 2018, 2019. And, yeah, you know, I, like I said, it was with my family. 
and they and they love it just about as just as much as me like we're always like referencing not like always but like we do like reference that film on a pretty regular basis and if we ever see it on tv we always make sure to leave it on yeah i watched this once with my now wife we both thought it was pretty good but i watched it the second time by myself because like, I, I don't think she's uh she didn't like it that much to check it out a second time but i would say it was i, I would say it's better on a rewatch i think it kind of started appreciating a lot of the stuff especially a lot of the references at the very end of the film how it connects to the beginning i love how when they first meet uh in the karaoke bar or sorry in the trivia game night in the bar when rachel adams and jason bateman first meet i love how that is like a similar shot to their relationship at the end of the movie is just little things like that that makes it really enjoyable. Uh, it's a cute rom-com, really. Like, it's a comedy, but it's also like a romantic film. Like, I really love these two as a as a couple. I think they're really fun. Yeah, that's a good point. It's just, it's very rewatchable in the sense that you pick up on details and foreshadowing that you might not have originally. And yeah, there's just a lot of really fun chemistry between the two. Like, I love the scene where uh, she, has to, she has to fix his bullet wound yeah um yeah just there's a ton of great moments with those two and i think the whole cast um we mainly just talked about them and jesse plemons but i think just the people they play the part they do the party with and his brother they're all a lot of fun yeah i think kyle chandler is one of the best of the movie too i think he's really funny just how naive and kind of arrogant he is all the time it's really fun yeah yeah, I think him and Jason have good chemistry as like brotherly, as like a brother rivalry. I, I think it's enjoyable. Yeah, as a whole, I think this is one that is very easy to rewatch. Uh, it's great to check out for the first time if anyone has not seen Game Night. Uh, Trex, is there anything else about Game Night that you wanted to discuss? It's uh, it's it's like we said. The uh, I remember in the Illumination podcast, it's easier to dunk on a bad movie than it is to talk for long periods of time about a great movie. And that's kind of what I feel here. I think just it's the type of movie that just speaks for itself. You got to see it for yourself because I don't think the jokes are as funny when we tell them. I think you got to see the movie and see how they tell them in order to get the full experience. And so that's obviously what I'd say is just uh, go watch the movie. It's a pretty easy watch. Um, and you all should have seen it back in 2018, but that's another thing entirely. Yeah, well, the good thing about the movie is it's very much situational comedy. It's not, it's not that many zingers. It's more just situational uh, comedic moments. So no matter what we discuss, uh, when you watch the film, it's going to feel fresh, hilarious. Uh, there's really very little spoilers, you know, except for like big plot twists, I guess, that we haven't really been discussing. So I, th I think you're good to go to go check this out. It's a good time. Uh, and yeah, maybe you have a point there, Trex. I was going to do best of 2017, best of 2016, work my way down each year, but maybe I should have been doing worst of each year. Maybe that Heck would yeah, that would have been awesome. Yeah, probably, but you know. I don't know if I could bring myself to watch like 10 terrible films every single time. That, that might be tough. I'm trying to think, what would I pick for like a worst of 2018? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think I, I think I would probably choose... Uh, because I didn't see a lot. Probably something like Crimes of Grindelwald. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's easily bottom five. Or just like one of those uh, bottom of the barrel, like animated movies. 
All right. Well, it was great to have you on, Drex. Uh, well, we'll see you again sometime soon, whether it be an animation ranking or best of 2017, whatever it is. Uh, have a fantastic day. Take care. For our next movie up for the 2018 discussion, we have a movie and director that I haven't discussed on any podcast yet, despite him being probably one of the most well-known directors or films of the last 10 years. And to help break it down, The First Man. We have the first man of podcasting himself, Sush. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Q. Thank you for having me on the show again. Of course, of course. And any reason to discuss films that I haven't seen yet. Um, you're the only person of this entire podcast that I'm doing. I believe we're discussing nine or ten movies. I haven't actually sat down and counted them yet. Uh, this is the only one I have not seen beforehand. So you're finally forced me to watch a new movie. This is exciting. Fantastic. And what a good movie to, to, to watch for the first time. Yeah, honestly, it really is. Uh, I feel like this one, you know, compared to... Damien Chazelle, who was the director of this film, as well as La La Land and Whiplash. Uh, this is easily the most slept on of the three. Like the other two are, you know, modern classics. And this one, honestly, I heard nothing about. It. I'll be honest with you, Sush, and this might be my naiveness showing. I didn't realize it was about like the actual moon landing. I didn't realize it was actually about Neil Armstrong until like 15 minutes in. I thought it was just like a made up story until about the 15 minute mark someone called him neil and i just went oh okay just kidding this is like based off a true story interesting that's great i mean the first 15 minutes there's hardly any dialogue so that totally makes sense you'd be like what's happening i thought it was just a creative liberty going i didn't realize this was a <laughs> true story of course i have to ask the the first question for everybody here why is The First Man your favorite film of 2018, or at least the movie you wanted to discuss for this podcast? Well, I think you, you pinpointed it at first. It's, it's, you know, probably Chazelle's most slept-on film. I mean, he's got three movies under his belt. Well, four if you count Guy and Madeleine, but not many do. So it's, it's a super slept-on film, and I think it was one of the most slept-on films of 2018. I looked it up yesterday, and I think it had... A couple nominations for Oscars. It did win one. What was it for for sound mixing? If I'm not mistaken. It didn't get nominated for any like acting awards or any directing things. Not even in Justin Hurwitz for his music. So it was a super slept on film for 2018. And even for myself, I remember watching the film at the time and thinking, yeah, that was pretty good. But I don't know. There was something off about it. I, I couldn't quite connect with it. But then over the years, I've returned a, a couple times and it's just grown on me more and more. And yeah, I'm, I absolutely love it now. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely get the connect. I feel like uh, it does feel isolating at times, but I am pretty shocked at just how underappreciated this film was, especially you saying it wasn't nominated for score when clearly this movie has a fantastic score. I don't know how it did in cinematography and visual effects. Uh, it sounds like it lost both, but hopefully it was nominated for both because uh, those are also some really beautiful moments of the film when it comes to its camera work and just the look of the film. So, you know, the film uh, is, definitely, is definitely a technical achievement. Uh, and structurally, I think to tell a true story and do it this well 
is also really good. I, I, I felt a lot of the impact, especially by the second and third acts of the movie. Uh, it's kind of surprising that this is a movie that people don't talk about as much because I kind of walked away wanting to talk to people about it. I was like, man, like this scene was awesome. I really felt the impact of that shot, and you know, and nobody's really seen it, so it's hard to talk to someone about it. Yeah, certainly, it's yeah, it's not one that people want to bring up of a bunch. Um, you know, I've I've had the pleasure of speaking about it with a few people, but uh, most people just don't even think about this movie. Yeah, that definitely shocks me because it's it's so breathtaking. It's so it's like a, a tremendous achievement in sound mixing and sound design. Um, the music is fantastic. The acting is really, really up there. I think this might be Gosling's best performance. And it it's just no one talks about it. It's just like gone with the wind. It's just gone, you know. And that has always i don't know that's always like shocked me that people just don't want to talk about this movie or or don't consider it to be that good that's interesting ryan gosling's best performance you you would put on the the first man i think so i think his approach to neil's just pure sadness like what you know for someone to go through such a loss like a neil as a person um you know to lose your daughter to a disease you know cancer it seems uh that's it's completely heartbreaking but then to not only lose your daughter but to continue on and then become the first person to touch the moon i think that that the way that Gosling portrays that in this film is exceptional because to do that first and foremost as a human is amazing. Uh, but then to kind of portray that and really put yourself in those shoes as an actor um, and really, you know, ev- evoke those emotions and those feelings. I think he did a fantastic job. And like, for example, the one uh, after his daughter dies and he, uh, locks himself in his study and he's you know breaks down and starts crying like that that was a powerful scene and i think that's just really tough to do as an actor to just be so vulnerable so for me um and i love gosling but for me this is probably his best performance you might have convinced me it really is one of his strongest performances and he's an actor that i just consider is fantastic all around so it's definitely not a uh, slap in the face for this movie that this is one of his best performances easily. I really do like this film. Uh, and I really do like Austin as a whole. I don't know if this movie would have been as effective if they had a different actor. I thought the way he was able to contain his emotions was be able to show depression, but also do it very subtly. It was mostly through mm-hmm. like the silence for a lot of the time. And I re- really feel like the absence of sound is just as important in this movie as sound itself. So I thought that his quiet demeanor worked really well in this film. Yeah, he's so incredibly calculated and he just, you know, he's an engineer. So he, he Gosling really evoked that sense of calculation and just being, you know, focusing on what's important. But then you can tell that, like, he just struggles with trying to open up to his wife or to his friends incredibly distant from his kids he you know likes to be alone a lot 
uh, and contemplate things. And I'm sure most of the time is spent thinking about his daughter. Um, as you can see with some of the flashbacks, especially at the end, when they flash back to that, that scene where they're, you know, out on, in a park or in a field somewhere and they're having a picnic or something. And it's, he's, you know, spending time with his family and his daughter. And it's just, that's all that's ever been on his mind. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's really impactful the way that he approached it. It's not something that I feel is, is easy to do. Yeah. So we have discussed that this film isn't necessarily as well known or, you know, not as well known as maybe it should be uh, in the film community mm -hmm. or just by casual audience goers. So if you were to give a quick 30 second pitch, Sush, on what the film is about, a quick explanation, and maybe just a reason to make them want to check this out for those that haven't seen it. Oh, really putting me on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Maybe I should be giving people a heads up about this 30 second pitch because it feels like it always throws people off. Ah, no worries. I think like what I would tell people is that, you know, First Man is a, you know, fairly exciting film. Like there are some fairly exciting moments in the film. Um, but overall, it's a, it's a somber look at an individual who carried the world on his shoulders to make it to space while also having to deal with his own personal burdens and hardships. Um, and to overcome all that and to end up being the first man on the moon, uh, it's worth seeing. It's a spectacle worth seeing. I think that's a good way to put it, where it's worth seeing. It might not be the best Chazelle film. It might not be the best film of 2018. But it's, it's a visual spectacle that when you watch it, uh, you will take something away from it. It's not a movie that you'll kind of just forget about. It gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, there are some standout moments in this movie that really stick with you. I think there's just some iconic shots that really left wondering in your mind. Like I remember just laying in bed after watching it last night uh, and just thinking of one shot near the end of the film that... It's just really, really powerful. And I think Chazelle has really mastered his art by this point. Obviously, he's done Whiplash and La La Land. So by first man, of course, the guy knows what's going on. And it's kind of it's just great to see Gosling on the top of his game, Chazelle at the top of his game, and making like a real blockbuster. Like this kind of gives mm -hmm. me Top Gun Maverick vibes or I'm trying to get some other more modern blockbusters where you walk away from it and you just go, Hell yeah. I just watched a fucking movie. Like, I, I, you don't yeah. get that that much with blockbusters nowadays. Like, I would probably say Quiet Place is kind of like that from 2018 as well, but more in a different way. You kind of walked away just going, fuck, that was good. But you don't get amped because you're so fucking nervous the whole time. This movie, you kind of get a little <laughs> yeah. pumped, right? Like, you just saw a dude laying on the fucking moon. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you can't help but cheer for, for Neil and, and just for the folks who, who helped put him up there. Like, after all those struggles and losing so many astronauts and pilots over the years to then finally making it on the moon and then coming back home, like, you just got to cheer and be like, yeah, fuck yeah, we did that. Yeah. He did that. Like, it's, you know, humanity is one of humanity's, you know, crowning achievements to have put somebody on the moon. It's hard to describe, but just a sheer, sheer awe that this really happened and that it happened this way, too. And when you talk about blockbuster, you're saying that it's like a blockbuster, right? So 
for me, like just the sound and the, the, the composition of the film with the editing and how high the stakes were, like it really felt like the stakes were real. Um, and that these, you know, you, you know that what the story's outcome is, but with however many people dying throughout the film, like you think, oh man, they, they could genuinely die. Like this is like, uh, there's like a 50, 50 chance that they don't come back. It's probably the chances are probably worse than that. So it's really like a, a, an, a, an achievement in itself. And then portraying it through this film is just, yeah, next level. Yeah. What was your first experience with this film? Did you watch it in theaters in 2018? I did. Yes. I, I went for my birthday. It, it came out a day after my birthday oh, uh, in 2018. Birthday. So um, October 12th is when it came out. And I went to see it because I was really excited. I mean, love Chazelle. He was coming off La La Land. La La Land at the time was probably one of my favorite films. Uh, I was really excited for for, you know, another venture into Damien Chazelle. I thought, hey, this is going to be completely different from, you know, La La Land and even different from Whiplash. So I went to see it and I remember coming. Yeah, I came out of the theater and I was like, that was really good. But then I was like, it's kind of cold. Like, I don't it didn't have that heart, that warmth that like Chazelle's other films had. And that was kind of my first encounter with the film, my first interpretation of the film. And it's it's changed since then. But yeah, I, I got to see it on the big screen, at least, which was amazing. Yeah, my first experience with the film was last night. Obviously, this is <laughs> the, uh, the, the first the only film on this entire 2018 uh, podcast that I'm doing with everybody that I haven't seen prior. So I have not had any experience with this before. And I, and I do wish I saw this in theaters. I, that was my biggest takeaway, I think, from yesterday was, man, yeah. this is a really good movie, but God, it'd be good in theaters. I think space films work just so well in a theater. I think it's because it's like the pitch black room and just the only source of light is just the space on screen. I, I think that's when space films work well. Like I thought I saw, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey at home the first time, and I thought it was pretty good. But when I saw it in the theater, it was fucking awesome. And I think that's just something I'm missing from this movie. If it's ever going to drop in a theater, which unfortunately, you know, I I don't think it ever will. I don't think it's got that cult status for like some viewers to want to go check it out. But if it ever does, I I think I might swing by and watch it because I do think this is a theater film. It just looks really great. Um, And I do think the two hour and 20 minute runtime is pretty long on the first watch. Like it, it really does seem like it drags at times, but at the same time, I, I felt how impactful them landing on the moon was by the time we got there. Like to see them struggle year after year, they got like the year date popping up every twenty or thirty minutes in the movie, just to let you know how long they've been working on making this happen and how important it is mm-hmm. as a nation for for mankind to have this moment of success. So mm-hmm. when they land on the moon and he finally says the line, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, like honestly, as someone that did not grow up in the uh, 1960s, spoiler, I'm not that old, but uh, <laughs> I, I never really felt that impact of that line. I always thought it was a pretty cool one-liner, kind of a pretty good zinger if you ask me, but I never mm-hmm. felt any power in that line. I just thought, okay, that's a pretty cool line to say when you land on the moon, but to finally see it after watching it for two hours on screen that line suddenly just feels so much more important and so much more relevant to the 1960s than it possibly ever was, in my opinion. Like, I thought the way that line 
kind of represented the entire journey everyone went through. Like, I heard that line millions of times beforehand, and it finally felt like it had some weight to it. Like, I, I, you could feel how true that line was for America and just for, you know, Earth. Yeah. Yeah. To think of that as the thing you're going to say when you step on the moon, like, that. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder how he came up with that and 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 where it came from, you know, his struggles and everything like it's it seems pretty apt for for Neil Armstrong to have said something as calculated as that. Um, yeah, it's a good line. Yeah, I would have fucked. Yeah, I wouldn't have said anything that good. <laughs> I would have said this is sweet. You yeah, know? I would have been like, man, the cell service sucks over here. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? I can't watch Netflix up here? This yeah. is bullshit. I can't watch First Man? Get out of here. I'm, I'm done. Oh, man. I want it to be immersed. What is yeah. this crap? <laughs> yeah, imagine yeah. watching First Man on the moon. That would be something. <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like, I, I also, I mean, I've always been into space and, and I've, I've read up on things and I've looked at things. So, yeah, you, you know, you come across that sentence of you know one small step for man one giant leap for mankind and it's you're like okay yeah like that's pretty cool like that's a cool thing to say but this film really brings it home that all those struggles all those people that were lost trying to get to that point and and then finally like release basically i'm never the big space guy when i was a kid i always was just like ah those lights in the sky whatever (laughs) i got a light in my bedroom i don't give a (laughs) so i never maybe that's why maybe that's why i never saw this movie before yesterday because i was just like ah space who cares but every time i watch these movies like 2001 space odyssey gravity that's like to get myself to watch it i'm kind of like eh, whatever i've seen stars before who cares but when you (laughs) sit down and watch it you go okay these are so cool like space really is pretty cool i should have gotten into it more when i was a kid but you know (laughs) well there's always time now (laughs) Yeah, it's true that the space movies are pretty, uh, pretty cool. Uh, like, uh, I watched Apollo 13 a lot growing up, and I really loved uh, Tom Hanks in that film. Um, and Bill Paxton, too, was great in Apollo 13. It's worth watching for him as well. But I think what First Man really does, for me at least, is it shows the humanity behind it all. Like growing up, you think of Neil Armstrong. Like I always thought of Neil Armstrong as, yeah, he's like that guy who, you know, was the first guy to be on the moon. Like that's pretty cool, but never really thought of who Neil Armstrong was as a person, right? But I think this film really puts that into perspective that these were individuals and individuals who had difficult lives uh, because of the losses that they endured and the stresses of their work. Um, let alone becoming an astronaut takes years and years of of work as a, either as an engineer, or as a pilot, or as you know, working in the military or something. Like, you can't just one day decide, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut today. It, it takes you know decades of hard work to get to that point, and then decades more to actually end up flying in space. So, what I I really appreciate about First Man is how it humanizes that aspect of it. Uh, they're not just astronauts; they're people. Yeah. yeah what would you say is your favorite scene from this movie i always go back to the end um when he's looking over the crater 
and he's thinking about his daughter uh, and you get that flashback of the the scene of the picnic and they're you know super happy and having a great time um and then he lets the the bracelet go off into the void of space into the void of the the moon that one's always stuck with me and it's a combination of you know the crate close-up cinematography uh from linus sandgren it's the combination of the music from Justin Hurwitz and just the way that Chazelle and uh, Gosling put that scene together from an acting perspective. Um, it's always had a lasting impression on me. Um, I love the one shot as he's like contemplating things. You can see like his silhouette in the crater and it's just like the horizon is there at the top, but then you have just the little astronaut silhouette in the shadows. That one's really cool because it just, I think it really shows the scale of things and how significant it is, but also that it's just one man. And yeah, that, that, that's one scene that's always stuck out with me. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely like the scene in the movie. Like, man, that's really, I think the scene yeah. that I honestly was thinking of laying in bed last night and the one that I think sticks with people the most of him dropping the yeah. bracelet and just that whole montage just just the whole visual aspect of it including like the 360 shot of like just all around him in space and just emptiness and just feels yeah. so eerie yet beautiful like things like yeah. that is just gorgeous great shots too there's like one shot where he finally like gets up to like the atmosphere and he's like starts kind of floating and there's kind of the reflection of the earth's atmosphere in his eyes through the window and that one's really cool. Yeah, the shots in this movie are really, really good. Uh, like the first takeoff scene is only yeah. footage of them inside the, the spacecraft, which is so cool. I really love how we always get the outside perspective, but the first takeoff, they only focus on the inside perspective. It's really like, just little things like that uh, makes the film just more memorable than it ever should have been. Yeah, yeah, that's it really shows how like claustrophobic it is. And, and yeah. I don't know, it helps it immerse you into that environment of being strapped to a rocket and blasting off into space. It's amazing because you would expect to see like these beautiful like shots of like the them leaving the earth and you have these like amazing like wide shots of the earth, but no, instead it's like tiny little like windows and like frames within frames of like what they would see and like you don't you don't get the breathtaking awe until basically until they land on the moon and they open the latch and the camera kind of like goes through the latch and then you get that huge wide shot of the moon and just silence like that's pretty cool like you don't get but you don't really get wide shots until that overall uh, the first man is a really good film especially just one that people might have let slip through their 2018 viewing experience like what i have done so if you are ever wanting to just sit down once you know a true story which i did not know about i thought this was just some made-up <laughs> story um and just a really fantastic visual experience uh you should definitely check out the first man is there anything else you wanted to say about it Sush, before we wrap it up here yeah i just want to echo what what quentin is saying like i think and everybody should check this out um especially if you're a fan of Damien Chazelle, if you're a fan of space, um, if you're a fan of biopics, I guess this would count as a biopic. 
I think it's it's worth checking out because just the amount of effort that they put in from the visual effects to the sound design and sound editing, um, the production itself, uh, the acting is really top notch. Like I think all the actors do a really, really good job. Linus Sandgren is one of the best uh, cinematographers working right now. His work on La La Land is uh, really exceptional. And then here it's, you know, you don't have those bright, colorful palettes like you do in La La Land, but his close-up shots, the way that he portrays or, or showcases the film, I should say, um, is really, really stands out to me. So I was uh, definitely shocked when he was not nominated for an Oscar uh, for that film. Yeah, check it out. It's really worth seeing. And honestly, for me, it might be Chazelle's best film. That's everything on our end. It was great to have you on again, Sush. Uh, we will talk Thanks to you later. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. Take care. For our next film, for the 2018 discussion, we have a new guest on the podcast who is here to discuss probably one of the most well-known films of the year, and that is going to be Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with David. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to discuss this. Excited to, like we said earlier, dive into the web. Excited to spin some tales figure this out that was a horrible pun i'm sorry listeners good yeah we're we're here to spin the webs uh see how this sticks so what is your experience with spider-man as a whole i imagine you you seem to be a big comic book fan here uh what what was it about spider-man to the spider-verse that really stuck to you so for me personally, you know, as a young uh, kid, when uh, the Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield uh, ones were coming out, I was very much a young kid. I was in elementary school, maybe just starting middle school. And as much as I could relate to Peter Parker being this nerdy kid, he was still this older, kind of ripped, physically adept guy you know everything that you maybe hope you can be as a little kid but to me necessarily true to the spider-man i had read in comics so for me i think this is the first comic book movie that actively feels like you're watching a comic book if that makes any sense Uh, that makes a lot of sense i think anybody that watches this film can definitely tell that this is the most similar to the comics. Obviously, I don't read a whole lot of comics. I don't really read a whole lot, period. I'm more of a movie guy. But we'll yeah. <laughs> but I've definitely read a lot of Spider-Man comics. And watching this film, it does kind of bring the inner child out of me because the Spider-Man comics were the only ones that I read. And it really does feel like you're just reading a comic book on screen. Like the animation, the style... The fact that he's like this young kid, you really feel like it's just leaping off the pages, which you never get from any, you know, live action superhero film. So this film right off the bat feels very unique. And, uh, you know, uh, for me, you know, there, there are little nuances. Like when I'm watching a live action movie, I may be looking for the subtext a bit more. With the animated movie, they kind of have to flash it in your face. In Spider-Verse, as a comic book movie, you know, they are literally putting dialogue from the movie out into your face. Maybe you didn't hear it, but it's still there on the page. 
or you know one thing that i think is amazing about uh, this movie compared to frankly almost any superhero movie is the fact that we got to in- witness diegetic music i don't know if you're familiar with that diegetic is a fancy word saying that the music that was heard in the movie is also being taken place in universe like how miles loves sunflower but we're still hearing him listen to it and i just think that's a really cool immersive way to kind of take us on that journey that's a good point. I never really considered the music in this film, but that is a huge aspect to it. It's also what helps him focus his ability by staying calm and listening to music. Uh, it definitely is a huge crutch to the film, and it works really well. Yeah, for me, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's not so much to me that it leans on the music, but I think the music does a fantastic way of maybe carrying the tone in a way that dialogue can't. You know, words can only say so much, but the music kind of allows us to figure out the inner psyche, the motivations in a way that don't necessarily need to be explicitly stated like you'd find in other, frankly, superhero or other media. Yeah, animation works really well in this film. I think that's why I really do believe this is my favorite superhero movie of all time. Uh, What about you? Is this up there for you? Oh, this is without question. I remember having seen Infinity War, and you know, it, it, it can't get better than this. This is the most amazing thing ever. This has everyone. This is where superhero movies peak. It was a fun ride, and we're just going to watch it fall. And then I went to see Spider-Verse a month later, and oh my god. Truly, I believe Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse may be the... Not the definitive Spider-Man movie, the definitive superhero movie as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. And I think I'm in the same mindset, because Infinity War is my favorite MCU film of all time. Uh, and I thought, wow, like, really, this is the best uh, superhero films have to offer for this decade. Like, we finally got a really good one here. And then Spider-Verse came, and I just went, wait a second, this is way better. Like, they really double whammied us here in 2018 with, Two of the best superhero films, specifically Spider-Verse, and I think it's the animation. I just think it works so much better for superhero films. There should be more animated films. You know, I know there's DC Super Pets, but like, let's have some real animated superhero <laughs> films, because Spider-Verse is so good. Like, even Kingpin, his towering presence could never have worked well in live action. In animation, he looks so intense. It's awesome. And, you know, there, there's a weird thing about it where, you know, Kingpin, who is clearly must be 15 feet tall because of how tall he is compared to everyone else, but it still works. It still almost feels realistic. We're in that universe. We can believe it. We see it. And because we're so invested in the story, it doesn't really take me out of it. All of these outlandish, cartoony things. Hell, even Peter Porker, who I'm sure we'll get to at some point, is only a delight. It doesn't take me out of it for a minute. Yeah, Peter Porker is one of the surprises where as soon as I saw him, I just, I remember the first time I watched this film, which by the way was in 2020. I saw this like two years after it came out, to be honest with you guys. Uh, But when I did watch it, I remember when he popped up, I was like, oh, okay. I guess it was good while it lasted. They're going to start dropping the ball here. They're just going to start getting too wacky with this. Uh, But they didn't. They, They never once lost sight of it. Even he has some really fun moments that just feel natural in this world i like how each character is like a different animation style all in the main world where miles morales lives 
and all the different styles still work. Like the noir Spider-Man, he has this, like, like this gritty like fade over his skin, and it still works so well for the world. It just everything about it, uh, animation really comes out in full force here. This might be one of the best examples of the use of animation. Just the look of this movie is great. Honestly, it's silly to say, you know, because uh, like you said, you're a movie guy. I'm a book guy. I read a lot. But I truly, I think I could point to anything in this movie as a masterclass. This is how you do it. This is how you animate. This is how you score a movie. This is how you cast a movie. I can't think of a single negative about this movie, and I rewatched it hoping I could find something to scrutinize. Yeah, this is my third time watching it since I watched it in 2020, so I watched it about once a year at this point. And every time I kind of go in going, is it as good as I remember? Like, I really remember liking this, but it can't be that good. And every time I get blown away. Yeah, every time I'm surprised that I still absolutely love this. I'm waiting for the moment where I just no longer care but it hasn't happened yet like i really do like all these characters mile morales as a lead is really good like you really it really looks like a kid struggling with his identity and it's really fun to watch and i don't know there's this part of me that you know like uh, like we were talking about earlier you know being that little kid trying to find you know, your place it it almost puts you back in that state of mind not to mention all the kids who must be watching it feeling like yeah, you know, this is what I'm going through. Not all of us have radioactive spiders, but one day we will all be able to gain the strength and hopefully rise against whatever it is we're combating in that moment. So what is it about this film that makes it your favorite film of 2018? So honestly, like, like you said, you know, most movies, I you know, watch it once. Oh my God, that was amazing. Maybe some movies I watch it a second time. Yeah, that was pretty great, but you know, but Spider-Verse, I think I've watched Into the Spider-Verse close to 50 times in the last four years, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. I truly, truly just, everything about it from little Easter eggs, the comic book nerd in me loves, to even some references to movies, to the characterization to even just little subtle dialogue uh, choices. I can't stress enough how true to the Spider-Man comics this movie is. And to me, that is just such a... It allows me to escape. And I think that's the best way you can hone into a movie. If you aren't watching the movie, you're in the movie. And Spider-Verse is the movie of 2018 that allowed me to do that. So we get introduced to six, technically seven Spider-Man throughout the adventure. What would be some of your favorite of the Spider-Man that we've met? I fully believe Spider-Man Noir, as voiced by Nicolas Cage, if he is not in talks to have a movie, you and I need to storm some studio lot and make it happen. I truly believe Spider-Man Noir is maybe my new favorite Spider-Man, to borrow from the MCU, variant. I think that was brilliant. I'm really glad you said that, yeah. (laughs) I have the exact same pick. The noir Spider-Man's my favorite as well. You know, Nick Cage is something special in himself, but this was almost Nick Cage squared. It's like Nick Cage has become self-aware, and, oh, okay, this is what people think of me, but also I have spider powers. It's great. 
Yeah, I'm, I've always been a big Nicolas Cage fan. I like watching all of his films. So when I heard he was in this movie, it was a slam dunk. And yeah, I, I like how he, like, he says he likes to uh, let a match go for too long just so he could finally feel something. Like, what a, what a guy. Uh, also, the, the colorful Rubik's Cube. I love how he's so fascinated by it. Everything about him is just really fun. I don't think there's any intent to make that movie, but like, I can think of so many directions for that to go. I think uh, Penny Parker, the little uh, the anime uh, version, I admit I'm not a huge anime fan, but you know, uh, the hyper, super high energy. I definitely have plenty of people in my life who either resemble her or very much watch anime for that sentiment, and I think it kind of gave me a new appreciation maybe even for that genre. Yeah, I'm not a big anime guy either, but I do really like her in the film, and I think she counterbalances it really well, especially when she's always beside the noir Spider-Man. Uh, one's super, like, quiet and bummed out, and one of them is, like, very over-the-top energetic, and they work really well when they're together. I think that's another thing that just kind of makes this movie great, right? Like, they, most some movies really are struggling to strike that balance. But this movie seems to have everything. You, it has the high energy moments, the low energy moments. You have some sadness. You have a lot of heroic triumph. I think this movie really does capture the whole spectrum of emotion beautifully. And that's what makes the film really good, too, is it's also like a pretty powerful story about anyone can wear the mask anybody can be spider-man look at this film there's six different spider-man on the screen like anyone can put on the mask if you're ready for it uh, i like that theme of it's not just always some you know 15 year old white kid that got the spider by taking a photo at the museum like you know anybody can have it theoretically anybody can wear the mask and be a hero uh, i like that the film ties into the multiverse aspect by having that underlying theme with it so the movie is more than just oh look at all these wacky spider-man they're all together like there's an actual reason uh to have them all together for a theme in the movie uh it makes it more than just some dumb fun blockbuster but also just a really great story i wholeheartedly agree the characters characterization of everyone is Unique isn't the right word in the sense that we've seen these characters before. We all know what Spider-Man is supposed to be like. But this film almost turns it on its head. Uh, like you said, anyone can wear the mask. Whether you're super hyper, whether you're born in the 1920s, whether, whether you're an animated pig. Anyone can do it. And it just it, it brings a level of inclusivity to the superhero genre that I think was maybe missed in the early part of the 2000s. For the Spider-Verse film, what would you say is your favorite scene from the movie? There's a video essay, I'll uh, find it and uh, send it to you, but I think Miles' final leap, like the leap of faith, I don't remember, there was some specific term for it in the movie. Yeah, leap of faith. I think that is one of the defining scenes, not only in this movie, but in cinema for 2018. Like, even down to the little montage where he's about to jump and then chickens out, runs down uh, the stairs. It, it, it's just so perfect. It feels so real. And when he finally does take that leap of faith, it, 
you feel it too. You're proud of him. You feel like you've accomplished something. I think it's a beautiful moment that anyone watching can relate to and truly put themselves into. And that final shot of him jumping, which is not only one of like the biggest moments uh, of the last 10 years, but really like that shot is one of the most iconic shots of the last 10 years of the, of like the upside down world and him falling into it. Like it's so cool. The visual aspect of that scene. Uh, yeah, that's probably one of the stronger scenes. I already had brought up the, the music, but uh, the song, what's up danger. You know, I'm not a huge a rap fan. I'm not really listening to that type of music, but you know, you uh, listen to that uh, song compared to the actual release. Oh, they make it a little bit more techno. They make it a little bit more in the m- moment, and I think it characterizes exactly what, not necessarily the lyrics, but the overarching music, the little sharp notes, the thumping of the bass. I think it really gives you a sense of what Miles is feeling in that moment. And I just think it's a very immersive experience. Yeah, I think my favorite scene, probably not as iconic as the scene you said, but the reveal of Doc Ock, I think, mm. it, like, I remember when I first watched it, that was the one where I just went, oh shit, this movie's gonna do anything, man, when just the female scientist revealed that she was Doc Ock. Because, uh, once again, it played into Peter B. Parker's expectations and the audience of expecting a male Doc Ock, because it almost always yep. is, uh, to have her as the villain. And it worked so well. It was so clever. Even on this rewatch, seeing her in the documentary in his class, uh, she yep. was, of course, naturally going to be the Doc Ock of this world. It was really fun. And the movement of her arms, and I thought her zingers were really fun. I just love her as a character. I think she's a really fun villain. I, I just love what? that scene. It's <laughs> so much fun. What's amazing for me is on rewatches, there's so much telling you that this is Doc Ock before you, (laughs) you know, like down to her octagonal, the eyeglasses, or if you look in the scene where she's on uh, the screen, they actively make a point. They don't show you her last name. It's blocked out by the projector. It's just, it's so subtle and beautiful and I love it. Yeah. It's so noticeable on rewatches, which is what makes it satisfying. It doesn't really come out of left field because you should have been expecting it. So it just becomes Absolutely. a satisfying twist. I, I really love her as a character, and that twist will always stick with me. Every time I watch it, I always get excited when we get her intro. Also, one thing I just want to point out, in case anyone who's watching hasn't noticed, during that chase scene, you see Peter B. Parker stealing a bagel. At one point, when they're running out, you see Peter B. tossing a a bagel at one of the scientists it hits him off the head and in a little comic uh, font it says bagel and i crack up for several minutes every single time i see that yeah yeah i also love that he grabs the bagel because that was part of his game plan 100 percent. yeah <laughs> which uh, i feel like this you know i only read a couple of comics for spider-man so i, I might be talking out of my ass here but this is what I remember when reading the comics, like the quick wit, uh, just the snarky, I guess the block letters help with that quick wit as well, so it feels more natural in this movie. But even like the Tom Holland, the Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, which I love all three of them, I think they're all really good for the characters they're trying to play. Uh, this is the closest we've ever gotten to Peter Parker on screen. I absolutely agree the quick wit is honestly what kind of drew me into it and i think in a weird way it almost kind of 
helps foster that older brother sense of sensibility of Peter B to uh, Miles, you know. He's been doing this a while. He he knows the ropes. Like, I, I got this uh, kid, and it kind of gives you that sense of, okay, you know, not only can we uh, trust him, but yeah, he's done this. And also for Kingpin, I, I of the few comics I read of Spider-Man, I never got to Kingpin. I, I am not familiar with his character, but in this movie, I think he's amazing. When he kills the main Peter Parker in Miles Morales' world, uh, that was intimidating. Just you could see the echo of just him crushing him. It was so intense that anytime he's swinging at Miles later in the movie, uh, you're, you're nervous. Like I'm actually like terrified that he's gonna hit him with one of those fists. Like he feels terrifying despite him just being some guy. Like he doesn't even have like a superpower, but just his presence is so terrifying that you're you're fearful that Miles might not make it. That's exactly it, and that's kind of the amazing thing about Kingpin in. Uh, the comics, like we've said about uh, Miles, you know, Kingpin is just some guy. Sure, he's a mafia boss, sure, he has, has some sense of power, but he's just a guy. He doesn't have any superpowers, he doesn't have anything beyond his clearly enormous frame. But beyond that, he's just a guy. And, you know, his motivations are mostly pure. He just wants to save his wife, save his son. Not necessarily in the most correct ways, but (laughs) (laughs) surely we've all felt some level of longing for those we've lost. Yeah, and when they're in the train sequence near the end, my god, that is so good. The look of his wife and son is so powerful. It's great. Uh, Honestly, Kingpin's a really good villain in this. As a whole, a really solid movie. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Spider-Verse? Well, I mean, I, I guess for those who aren't aware, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse will be coming out in, I want to say, a year and a half, two years, followed by a part two. Yeah, part so one and part fi- two. Are you excited for that? I am very excited for that. The little teaser came out, I want to say, six months ago, and still kind of ruminating little theories. Yeah, no, I'm pretty excited for that. Uh, I'm a little hesitant that it's part one and part two, you know. I, don't, yeah. I mean, it worked, it worked with Infinity War and Endgame. That's I'm true. not opposed to it. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. Well, I'll definitely be waiting for it. I'm, I'm excited for anything Spider-Man, especially uh, anything that comes after this, because this was a fantastic film. Absolutely. I agree completely. All right, well, that's everything on our end. It was great to have you on here, David, talking about Spider-Man. My pleasure. Happy to be here. The next film we have up for discussion is probably one of the lesser-known ones, and I believe the only international film we are going to be discussing on the podcast, and that is Burning with our reoccurring guest for the Oscars, Jack. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How uh, how about you? Yeah, I've I've been doing good. Uh, Both of us watched this this morning. It should be fresh in our minds. It's uh, burnt into our skulls here. Uh, But Jack, what was it that made you want to choose Burning as your film for 2018? Well, I wanted to first all watch it again. because It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I actually watched it, was it last year? Before I graduated from college. But um, that and also, like, I really wanted to go deeper into Lee Chang Dong's uh, filmography. First of all, 
we watched uh, Burning um, in 2021. And then this year, I started watching a bunch of his other films like uh, Secret Sunshine and uh, Oasis. And there's kind of like the same threads uh, with those movies uh, comparing to this one. Mostly dealing with like the main protagonist being like a mysterious kind of like character that you don't really like know until the middle of the movie. But then also in general, just like watching like the psychological thriller that's like very like wrapped into its like own world. Like I really I really dig like those types of movies. Yeah, I like the psychological aspect of what's really going on between these three characters. So for those that haven't seen the film, because I imagine it's probably a good majority, you know, we got Spider-Verse and Hereditary in here, but I imagine something like Burning is one that is a little lesser known, uh, wouldn't you say, Jack? Uh, so for those that yeah. haven't seen the film, uh, Jack, do you want to maybe give a quick 30-second explanation, maybe maybe a 30-second pitch to convince people to maybe go check this movie out? Uh, what is this movie about, and why should people watch it? Okay, so I can try to really go deep into it, but um, simply it's about like this man um, who's a farmer, and he, in the beginning of the film, he sees one of his old uh, friends from uh, back in the day, which apparently he bullied um, her because uh, of her uh, looks. She had a uh, plastic surgery, so now she looks uh, very like beautiful. Um, but like both of them uh, meet up at a at a was like a, a storefront uh, full of like advertisements, and she's like uh, advertising a bunch of uh, I think sodas and like that. They both uh, go out for dinner, and eventually she tells uh, the guy that uh, she's going to Africa, and she'll be back, and they'll hang out. They'll probably hook up a little bit, and they do hook up. Once she comes back from Africa. Uh, she meets this uh, other Korean man, played by uh, Steven Yoon, and from there, three of them have like a very uh, friendship uh, bond that eventually turns into kind of like a mysterious psychological thriller. Um, but yeah, that's like the basis of the plot. Um, I can't really go deep into it. Yeah, we'll we touch a little bit on spoilers later uh, at the end, but at the beginning, let's try and yeah, maybe not spoil it too much to maybe incentivize people to go check this out. So, of the three central characters, uh, which is the one that you maybe gravitate towards the most, or maybe on these rewatches, you kind of started to appreciate the most? Um, since I've seen this again, I think now uh, Shin, uh, the woman uh, that uh, the main character um, meets again for the first time in a long time, uh, I, I really dig her character. Uh, third time around uh watching it mainly because she starts out kind of like very like bombastic and like very like philosophical with her uh beliefs and just like the world around her but then um once the first half and something happens and her her character and her presence moves uh towards the main character but like yeah i i really love her yeah on my first watch i was not a big Jin fan. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe she just seemed a little odd to me. She kind of drove me nuts. But I, I agree. On a rewatch, uh, I feel like her character is very interesting. I feel like it's uh, a lot more layered than I definitely thought the first time. The first time I thought she was kind of one dimensional. I think 
there's a lot going on with her character. I do find her very yeah. interesting. Yeah, especially earlier on when she's putting the the theory of like little hunger and big hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you pay attention to that dialogue, it plays out uh, later into the movie. Yeah, yeah, a, a really clever script. A lot of foreshadowing in the first half. And the first half feels like nothing much is really happening. I feel like when you watch it for the first time, you're kind of going, "What the fuck am I watching? What, what's what's going on yeah. here?" And nothing's happening. Um, but when you rewatch it, uh, they set up a lot first half but the, the first half is literally just setting up the domino so they can knock it all down uh when we get to the end and so i think that's what kind of makes this movie enjoyable on a rewatch uh, i think that's what makes it you know uh kind of a rewatchable this is the type of movie that rewards a lot of like rewatches um when you see it for the first time and when you get to the ending you're just like what how, how did we get from here to here but when you watch it again um there's a lot of like mysterious like meticulous uh placings of like the the dialogue and how the narrative plays throughout and you start to catch a lot of the stuff that uh goes uh throughout the film when you watch it again my favorite of the three has to be steven yin i I think ben is the perfect uh psychopath i think the guy is totally deranged and i fucking love oh yeah definitely (laughs) his presence in the first uh he comes into at the airport um you kind of already tell that he's kind of like a, like a laid-back person uh doesn't really care about the world around him but uh he's just living his life but like there's something wrong with him like deep down yeah yeah i would love to just have a drink and hang out with him i would not want to date him but i would love to just have a drink and hang out with him oh yeah i would <laughs> definitely like just hang out with him yeah, like yeah. I don't, I don't need any of my rings or something in his cupboard in the bathroom. I don't need to get that far with that, but you know. So what was your first experience with this film, Jack? Did you watch this when it came out in 2018, or did you catch up on this later? Um, so I actually saw this at uh, my uh, college uh, theater. Oh. They played a lot of uh, independent foreign films, and I, I knew nothing about this other than Steven Yeun being in the film. So I kind of went in just, like, a little bit cold. Um, but, like, after watching it for the first time, I was just, like, in awe with, like, the direction and, like, how the film was playing out. But I wanted to, wa- like, watch it again and kind of, like, dissect what was going on. Um, so I watched it again at home. And then I didn't revisit it until, well, later this year uh, with this podcast. But, uh, yeah, like, the first time I saw it was uh, at a my college theater and it was it was a really interesting experience so did everybody in the theater react to it uh, the same way as you or more people turned off by it i feel like the draw is steven yin i wonder if that draw keeps people um, engaged yeah i mean from what i remember it was kind of a little bit muted um i didn't really see a lot of reactions uh with the film but like i internally reacted to like a lot of stuff that was going on throughout the movie yeah that's fair. The film is a very somber film. It's definitely one that people just react internally to. I, you know, I don't think when the car was on fire or anything, people stood up and were like, yeah! Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's standing up to the ending of the film. Yeah, there's no post credit scene uh, that revealed a new character was entering the burning universe. Uh, yeah. It, <laughs> a, a little yeah. different, you know. <laughs> it's hard to clap yeah, and yeah. cheer, yeah. There's no Oscar cheer moment. No, no, no. There's no 
big grand speech that everybody just feels fucking pumped about afterwards. Uh, there's a lot of speeches in this movie, but you know, they're more reflective than they are getting yourself pumped up. So if you had to pick a scene, Jack, yeah, I know there's a lot. What would you say was your favorite scene? And has it changed over your viewings? I feel like for me, the first time I watched it compared to my rewatch this morning, I feel like uh, you kind of take away a new scene that really stood out to you. There's a lot to unpack. Right. Um, there's a lot of scenes that uh, are visually stunning and like kind of like resonate with me. Um, I think the biggest scene uh, everybody's going to be talking about is the, the Miles Davis scene um, at the barn where uh, they're all just smoking pot. And then um, Shin just gets up, uh, undresses, and just starts dancing to um, Miles Davis. And it's like this really beautiful, like, long tracking shot of her, like, dancing freely. And then you kind of see, like, her face, like, drop and, like, kind of, like, have, like, a depressive, like, mood. And then the camera, like, pans out to, like, for uh, the, the farm landscape. And then scene cuts to another scene. And it's just like, wow. Like, that's, that's, that scene, like, like, resonates with me, like, every day of my life. It's so good. Yeah, when I first watched the film, I think right off the bat when that scene starts, you kind of pick up, okay, this is the scene of the movie. And when I first watched it, I'll be with you, Jack. I don't know if I liked that scene the first time I watched it. It was really slow. I was like, ah, this woman's dancing. Who cares? You know, I'm not a big music slash dance guy. I don't care. <laughs> Uh, but but on the rewatch this morning, uh, that was the scene that stuck out to me on the rewatch. I just went, man, this is a scene. <laughs> you know, I don't know what changed yeah. over the year, but uh, all of a sudden that scene definitely had way more weight to it. Uh, d- you know, despite it being, you know, very uh, weightless with her dancing, uh, you know, I, I definitely felt that scene. I, I agree. I think that's the scene. Oh yeah, that scene and just uh, the scene for like at the end of the film uh, where. The second half is basically our main character being very like psychologically disturbed and trying to like figure out what happened to Shin, and then the the final scene of uh, him confronting uh, Steven Yoon, and then yeah, that the thing happened, and then the car burning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't really speak on it um, if I have spoil it. But yeah, that scene also alone is like. I think it's one of my favorite like endings in like cinema. Personally, like it 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 stuck with me like throughout these years. Stunner like of uh ending. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. We'll quickly touch on the spoilers because I am curious uh, to hear your thoughts here on the final act of this movie. For, for those that haven't seen it, uh maybe skip ahead a few minutes. But for those that aren't aware, the film really is the psychological torch that the lead character has to go through with the whereabouts of Jin, and, you know, it kind of all accumulates, you know, it's a two and a half hour movie, and all kind of builds up to the last 20 minutes, really. Like, it really starts ramping up near the end there. Uh, and what was your perspective on that, Jack? Well, after she, well, Shin smokes uh, a pot with uh, Ben and Lee, mm-hmm. um, she metaphorically disappears into smoke, and you don't really know what happened to her after. So from there, our main character follows uh, Demon Yoon as he's trying to like figure out what happened to her, and he's kind of, he's finding like a little bit clues about uh his about the guy's 
day-to-day routine, and then also the cat that Shin owned or didn't own, because it also plays a lot with the Scotia uh, cat theory. You have that thread going on, and then you also have the thread of our main character trying to write a story, uh, because he's a, he's, he's a novelist, and he's trying to like find like the right story to, to write. All leads up into like this desperate like psychological uh, attempt to figure out what happened to Shin, and then from there the ending where uh, our main character kills Steven Yoon, stabs him, leaves him in the cold, burns his body and his uh, his car, and like drives off into the darkness. And it's just like wow, like, that's a that's a great ending. Yeah, the ending's off. It really ends on a high. So, here's the big question, Jack. All right, I'm 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 gonna hit you right here with the big one. What do you think happened? She. I think she probably died. I think Stephen Yoon's character killed her, left her in the track. Maybe, uh, probably took her body and burned her, with the uh, the metaphorical uh, threat of uh, burning greenhouses. And uh, our character, our main character, is trying to like figure out uh, what happened to her, and it just ends in like sour. I think that's my theory. I think she probably just I mean, like wh- took off somewhere, went on vacation, and just didn't tell anybody. I think she probably also either drowned in like that uh yeah. well uh they they were talking about throughout the movie the the well. Yeah, that's another thing that I, I, I do think she is likely dead. If she's not on vacation. But if she is dead, I don't think it's at the hands of my boy, Steven. No way. You wouldn't have done it. That's way too obvious. And it's way more satisfying, in my opinion, if you didn't do it. Maybe that's why I like to pretend he didn't. Because I think the psychological torture that the lead character did to eventually kill Steven Yen's character, I think it's way more satisfying if Steven was actually innocent. That's way more fun to me. Yeah, but then yet again, it plays around with the idea of like rich people getting away with yes. murder. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you kind of see a lot like lately in these uh, movies about uh, anti-capitalism. Most recently, with like the White Lotus, um, the, the miniseries, it plays a lot with uh, just rich people getting away with uh, stuff. But um, I think that's kind of like my theory, like just like rich people getting away with stuff. The idea of like rich people being bored and like going through the motions, but also having like a very secret uh, society or like a thing that uh, they can like kind of do and like get away with. But uh, yeah, I think that's 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 kind of like my theory. Yeah, but I think that's what makes the film fun. Is it? It never confirms it. It lets you just. It lets your mind wander. You figure out the pieces on your own. Uh, they'll show you some of the pieces to the puzzle. And then it goes, all right, go on, children. You go fill in the blanks now. You, you piece your own puzzle together. You try and figure it out. Uh, I like it. it. It could be anything. Honestly, it probably is Steven Yeun. I just like to imagine that that happened without his hands getting blood on them. But, man, right. I, I think it's great. Yeah, and um, I think it's more of like a modern retelling of The Great Gatsby. Because um, there's a scene where they, they talk about like how Steven Yeun's character is, is kind of like the Gatsby. Steven Yeun didn't get nominated for this, right? He didn't get a Best Actor nomination. Or, sorry, Best Supporting Actor nomination. 
No, he didn't. Embarrassed. He should have. He was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I think he probably won something at like one of those festivals. Um, maybe like a nomination or something. I know it was it was huge at Cannes because of uh. Which of the three metaphors? Uh, and I'm sure there's more, but there's only three I can think of at the top of my head right now. Uh, would you say from the film was your favorite? Uh, the the well, the cat, or the greenhouse? Um, I think I now lean towards the cat theory of just like uh, Shin ha- owning a cat and then eventually the cat disappearing in her in her apartment, and you're kind of like, is she actually real or is it like a fictitious uh, thing uh, that the main character? created in order to write a novel but i i lean towards more of the cat than uh the greenhouses uh or the well uh theory yeah i think i'm a sucker for the greenhouse uh, i i like that whole when i really love that one shot of him looking at the greenhouse on fire like that was one of the most visually stunning shots so, you know. oh yeah like the the dream sequence of yeah. him being i think like when he was a kid or something yeah. but like he's He's uh, looking at like a burning house, greenhouse. Yeah, that's a that's a really great scene. Honestly, I think it's my second favorite scene. If if the dancing scene wasn't so phenomenal, I I probably wouldn't towards the greenhouse on fire. Like it was so so well shot, and I think it stood out because the rest of the film is very blue, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, this shot is just black and pure red, so in your face. Yeah, and I also like the scene where uh, our main character is following. Ben and um he eventually goes into like these fields and like the the score is like ramping up. I I like that scene also as well. I like I love the score. Like I played the score like million. So that's everything <laughs> uh, on my notes for burning. Is there anything else you want to quickly say about this film, Jack? Well, I think the whole idea of like the little hunger versus the big hunger or the great hunger. That's in the beginning. That's uh kind of like brush it off and you're just like oh she's she's talking crazy but then it kind of plays out throughout the whole movie of like people being uh emotionally hungry for uh the world around them and trying to like figure out how to uh just go through the motions of life that's that's one thing i like and then just also the idea of um our main character trying to like figure out what happened to shin and it kind of turns into like a like a obsession and like a fetish um, because he's also kind of uh, imagining uh, her having sex with him um, later, like later into the movie, just uh, her having like just like masturbating um, on his bed and all that. It's 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 a lot of like crazy stuff like that that kind of like throws me into the loop and also gives me more um, insight into what the movie is about. It was great having you on again. Oh yeah, thank you. Picking all these sophisticated films, you know. It was a great pick, and it was great to talk to you once again. Yeah. Anytime, man. For the next film on the best of 2018 discussion, we have The Favorite, which is the favorite of our next guest, Sammy. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm I'm doing well, doing well. I just rewatched The Favorite yesterday in preparation for this. I, you know, it's been about two years since I last seen it. 
When was the first time you've watched this film? What was your, did you watch this when it came out in 2018 or is this a newer watch for you? I was aware of it when it came out and it's awards showing, but I didn't see it until a couple weeks before quarantine. Uh, just when I really started getting into watching the movies that were up for awards and all of that. Uh, and yeah, I saw it, I think maybe January or February of 2020 for the first time. Yeah, that's pretty much the same time I remember watching it. It was roughly about the same time. Uh, why was this your favorite film of 2018? It has so many things going for it. I, I feel like people are usually dismissive of period pieces, and I can be too, because they're often quite tedious or slow and have uninteresting historical subplots. But this movie really doesn't focus on the history at all and is solely focused on the characters and their actions and the behavior. And it fully just gives you everything about these three women and how complex and interesting and humorous at times terrible they are. And it's really exploring power dynamics in a fun way. It has such a dry and subtle use of humor that is very well incorporated. And I mean, it looks stunning. It's very wacky. I mean, it's a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, so naturally it is going to be weird, but it just adds to the beauty, like all the sets, everything. It's just so much fun to look at. And of course, all the performances are just out of the world. And it's just such a fun movie, which you wouldn't expect if you just saw the poster or a couple images from it. Um, it really defies all of that. And it has such amazing pacing, too. It really moves at such a quick pace, and it's just a blast. Yeah, I think the pacing is a really good point. It's about two hours longer. I think it's exactly two hours. And my God, does it fly by. I watched it last night, and I don't think there was a single second where I was bored at all like it was just constantly moving there's so many things going on a lot of layers to all three of the characters and all three are really fleshed out i think by the end of the movie you know a lot about these three ladies and really their motivations and you know drive for power i think they really don't waste a second uh in these two hours it doesn't drag at all mm, absolutely and it just does such a good job at expertly balancing each character in a very unique way. I don't remember the name. I think Emma Stone is Abigail and the other, I don't remember. Which one is Abigail and which one is Sarah? Uh, Sarah is Rachel Weisz and okay. Abigail is Emma Stone. Yes. So it's really interesting how they introduce each of these three women because Emma Stone's journey to power is, is the most like famous or typical as you could say journey where she like starts off at the bottom and works her way up uh rachel wise is at a pretty high level and decreases and increases throughout and olivia coleman is just always at the top so mm -hmm. the yeah. way that these characters are introduced and you can see their arc and their development and their reveals are all very different and they fit together wonderfully yeah, I think all three of them, like you said, I think it's interesting that Olivia Coleman stays on top no matter what. And the other two, no matter how much they fight for the power or to get a hold on this area, uh, you know, they, they, they can never seem to get to the very top because they, they're always going to be under Coleman. I think that's kind of a fun underlying theme for all three of the characters. Uh, for those that haven't seen the movie, 
Uh, Want to give a quick 30 second explanation on maybe what it's about or why they should possibly check it out? Yeah, so Emma Stone plays Abigail, who is the cousin of Rachel Weiss. And Rachel Weiss is a servant, I believe is the right word, for Olivia Coleman, who plays Queen Anne. And essentially, the film is. Um, it well, it starts off as Abigail attempting to work her way up to the status that Sarah has. She wants to become close with Queen Anne. She wants to work for her and, in a way, dethrone the spot of Sarah. And the film is essentially a game of cat and mouse, in a way, between Abigail and Sarah and their fight for power to have the most authority over Queen Anne. And during all of this, you get to see the wild personality and the characteristics of Queen Anne, who is anything but normal. Um, and yeah, that's basically it. It's, it's very simple in its plot, if I, if I must say. Yeah, I think giving a quick outline does make it seem pretty simple of just a good cat and mouse storyline, like you said, where it's two people both trying to one-up each other. But when you watch it, it feels like it's so layered with both of them trying to outsmart each other. It's a very smart film. I think when I first watched it, maybe you can tell it was early 2020, it was an immediate comparison to Game of Thrones for me. I was like, oh, it was like Game of Thrones in the Victorian era. That's kind of how this movie presents itself, because it's just a lot of smart people in a room talking, and mm. there's really not much else to the film. It's a very clever story between all three characters. I'm curious which one you liked the most uh has it changed during each rewatch or have you always had like a personal favorite well it's difficult because there's something so interesting about all of them i mean i think queen anne is in a way the most showy character so i'm going to gravitate to her the most she has the most to do she has the biggest performance um, but more and more over time, the performance I've appreciated more was Rachel Weiss because she is the most subtle and the most nuanced out of the three women. And I think that she does such a good job at slowly deceiving the audience and her, and her fellow characters. Um, but I suppose Queen Anne, obvious and boring answer, but I think she's, she takes the cake on this one. Because it's just such, I mean, so many British actresses dream of playing a role like this. And she, Olivia Coleman obviously is perfect in the, in the role. And I think that this character wouldn't have been as fun and as memorable had she not played her. So yeah, naturally, I, I guess I lean towards that character, but they're all amazing. Yeah, I do think all three are really good. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bummed two of the three didn't get Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress in the Oscars. I just think the, this film was the powerhouse performance of the Oscars for the year. Like, 2018, I think this was the film that just had so many great roles. Emma Stone was my favorite on the first watch, but on the second rewatch, uh, yeah, I think I'm kind of with you. I think The Queen was probably my favorite, but I really, really liked Rachel. I thought her character was really fun as Sarah. I think it's hard to, you know, talk about the supporting actress race here because I think, I've always said this, I think both Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz are lead as well. I think all three of them are lead characters. I can understand putting Rachel Weisz in supporting most. I still think she's a lead, but Emma Stone is definitely a lead. Yeah. Um, 
so it's hard to say that and and i i if you just take the supporting performances then i agree with the regina king win i thought that was wonderful but it's such a great ensemble and just as i said this game of cat and mouse it's kind of a comedy and they're the reason why it's funny there's just so much to you know gasp over there's such shocking turns um within their dynamic never really gets old i could i could watch this as a series even it's just so much fun yeah, it almost feels like a series. Like it feels like, especially as it's chaptered, right? I believe there's eight mm-hmm. different chapters throughout the film, so it almost kind of feels like its own little mini series, just really wrapped up into two hours. Like it kind of is episodic in its story structure for who's in power one episode and who falls in the next, and you really don't know who's going to come out on top. Absolutely, and even after it ends, you still believe that there's going to be a constant battle and an up and down fight it never really feels like the ending has this solid conclusion there's always going to be something holding the other back and queen anne is just not very good at handling her emotions and her inner thoughts so she's going to keep juggling between them as well and had that character been dare i say smarter it would have been more boring Oh, yeah, yeah. Queen Anne as kind of just being this very emotionally driven person on top and having the two people on the bottom being very, you know, strategical in a sense uh, with their motives. Uh, that, that's what makes it fun. I think if the person on top was strategical, then it would be boring. Like, there's really not going to be as much of a power structure if the person on top knows exactly what's going on. It's going to be hard to kind of pull the wool over her eyes. But having her as this emotional crutch to both of the people underneath her. Uh, yeah, that's definitely the excitement for it. Uh, I think that's what makes Queen Anne, you know, pro- probably both of our favorites, just because I think her reaction to both of the other girls is really fun. Yeah, I mean, and Olivia Coleman is an actress who everybody kind of likes. She's really on a roll at the moment. She has three nominations in four years, and she's going to, I really believe that Empire of Light is going to be four nominations in five years. So she's just really on a roll. She very well could be the next Meryl Streep. I know a lot of people say that, but it just seems inevitable at this point. She's really just on such a hot streak of this. And I think that, you know, part of the reason is because of her speech. A lot of people really loved that speech. I mean, she got a standing ovation after she won, after she gave her speech, too. And people just, that YouTube video has millions of views. And the reason why is because it was a surprise win. And part of that makes the performance, like, even better for me. Like, I don't know, that's, that sounds kind of weird that I'm correlating this with the film itself. But the fact that she wasn't a front runner makes the win better. And it makes me like the performance on a different level. Because it shows that, like, all these industry people who are usually so boring. I mean, if you look at the lead winners in the Oscars of the last, within the last 10 years, it has been very lackluster. And they give very boring, very uninspired choices there. You know who's going to win usually. And the Olivia Coleman win is, like, the exception. It's really the only one I can think of in a while that wasn't a complete shock. So that was the complete shock. Everything else has been boring and expected. But I think that, you know, all of that really has helped her. And she's, you know, just going to keep coming out with the, these amazing performances. 
And I've just loved her in everything. I mean, everything except her Emmy-winning role in The Crown. I thought that her performance as Elizabeth was a little boring, but, you know, that's just me. I know a lot of people disagree with that, but everything else I've seen her in, phenomenal. I mean, she's one of the best we have, and she absolutely deserved that win. I'm so happy she won it, and I was thrilled when, when she won, even though I hadn't seen the movie at the time. <laughs> As soon as he was seeing the movie, he was just fucking stoked that she won, which, you know, says a lot about Olivia Coleman, because I, I kind of agree with you that, you know, the acting nominations have always been one of my least favorite categories, because I kind of know who the winner is in all four categories almost every single time. I really, you know, I'm much more excited for who's going to win screenplay and who's going to win best picture. Like, those are obviously way more exciting for me than, you know. We, we already knew Joaquin Phoenix was winning Joker. We, we already knew uh, all these other nominations were eventually going to be the winners, like Brad Pitt and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, there's nothing you can stop it. They're kind of foregone conclusions. But Olivia Coleman getting the favorite is probably one of the biggest shockers in the acting category over the last decade, at least from the ones that I've seen. And I do think it's because she's that good at the movie that they kind of decided to reward the best performance which should be the case, but it very rarely feels like it is. And yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I'm, I was stoked that she won. I didn't really follow, like I watched the old Oscar tapes after I seen the movie, so I already saw her do the favorite. I already knew she won, but still watching the tape of her actually winning over Glenn Close was a real shocker. And I think that you need yeah. more awards like that to make the Oscars exciting. Absolutely. And, and you know, over the last 10 years, in the lead actress category, which is my favorite category at the Oscars, I have only agreed with Olivia Coleman and Kate Blanchett. So it's like really rare that who I want to win actually wins. And really, I mean, I, every year I just really hope for the person I want. I mean, this year I really wanted Penelope to win and that didn't happen. It's always disappointing. I always expect so much from this category and it always just gives me the most boring winner. But this one, it was so thrilling. And I don't know, there's just, I love the surprise wins. I mean, the acting categories used to be so up in the air, like before the 90s, really. And now they've just become so boring. And it sucks. But hopefully, hopefully the idea of the precursor and all of that is sort of abolished soon enough, even though I don't think it will be. I just want more suspense. But maybe I'm asking for too much. Yeah, and even looking at the best picture lineup for 2018, it's interesting that of all the movies that are in that lineup, this is the only movie that's going to be on this best of 2018 list. No other movie that was nominated for best picture. Best picture uh, is going to was chosen by anybody. Uh, everybody came up to me and said, "Hey, I want to discuss this movie. I want to discuss that." Uh, this the favorite is the only one nominated for best picture that we're going to be discussing. So the Oscars, you know, they are. They, they, they aren't really symbolizing the best of the year when that's really, you know, one out of eight. is <laughs> not the best odds. I mean, but this is also just a, a very bad best picture lineup. Yeah. The favorite is obviously my favorite of the group. I really like Roma, but the rest I don't really think deserved a nomination. I just, they all racked up so much. And it's really embarrassing to me that you have this, but it's not like there weren't other contenders. I mean, if you look at some of the other major categories, I mean, Cold War got into director, and Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Beale Street got into screenplay, and those three are, like, better than seven of these Best Picture nominations. 
So I don't understand why they were so boring, but I suppose that this is how they've always been. And the Olivia Coleman win was the only thing that they did that year that wasn't boring, I guess. And, you know, I'll give credit where credit's due. I am fucking stoked The Favorite was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, honestly, it did get a lot of nominations, so I guess the Academy did It got like the most movie. nominations that oh, year. It got the most of the year? That, that Hey, that's awesome. I'll, I'll give credit yeah. where credit's due, because this does not feel like an Oscar movie, really. Like, it's kind of like, you know, Yorgos also directed The Lobster, and he gives me a lot of vibes like that, where it's like a dark comedy. The Academy doesn't really love those kind of movies. They did not like The Lobster. I thought that this doesn't give me that kind of vibe. I guess it's Victorian era, so that's something that they do tend to lean towards, but I'm just happy it did get recognition at the Academy, and it got the most nuts, oh, yeah. so I guess they liked it. Absolutely. And I have to be thankful for that. It even got, like, director, which is that's pretty awesome. amazing. It should have. Uh, the, the, direct, the direction of this movie is awesome. Same with cinematography. Did it get nominated for that? Yeah, it got nominated okay. for everything. It could have, Good. basically. Okay. Yeah, so I suppose they really, they really loved it. And, you know, the re- I mean, part of the reason why she won over Glenn Close was because The Wife, the movie that Glenn Close was in, was only in Best Actress. It was just one nomination. So The Favorite was always going to be a more viewed film, giving Coleman the edge. Yeah, I forget. Uh, what other awards did this movie win? Was it just Best Actress? It was just Best Actress. Um, but I honestly can see a world where I would give it everything it was nominated for. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would have, but you know, I guess yeah, I mean, maybe not supporting actress again. I really like the Regina King win there. Looking at this list, I think I would vote for it in all of them. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah. Before we wrap it up here, what was your favorite scene of the favorites? Ooh, okay. I, I don't know if I could pick a scene. I have a, a few that I at the top of my mind that I love. Yeah. One of them is when Olivia Coleman, um, Queen Anne, has to give a speech about their war plans. And because she's dumb and lazy, she decides that she can't do it. So she comes up with a plan to faint on purpose so that she doesn't have to give the war plans. That was hilarious. There was also the scene, um, the moment where she's eating so much cake. And then she just throws up, and then she just goes back to eat more cake. I mean, that was very relatable. <laughs> and then there's the moment. I mean, these are just things that happen in the movie, and it just makes sense. There's a scene where Rachel Weisz just shoves her fist in Olivia Coleman's mouth, and it just makes sense, you know? Yeah, that wasn't even the script. Rachel could just feel that. <laughs> I really love the scenes where they're shooting uh, together, uh, Rachel and Emma Stone up on the out on the field i just love those scenes of them both holding the guns looking at each other like it really oh, feels yeah. like it's a real hunt between these two i just love those scenes absolutely i don't know just like all of it is so well constructed and then oh okay no my favorite scene is the one where olivia coleman is getting ready for some event and Rachel wise has to give her approval and she's like Rachel Weiss is like, you look like a badger. Yeah. And then she's like really upset about it. And then she looks in the mirror and Rachel Weiss is like, what do you look like? And she's like, a badger. And then she yells at the security guard because he looked at her. And it's just like, that's, that was her Oscar moment. That should have been her clip. Um, love that scene. I don't know. It's, very, it's a very funny movie. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a really good scene. I love the badger scene. And I really love how at the end of the movie, they go back to that scene where she tells him, where, where Rachel tells Olivia Coleman, 
You know what real love is? Real love is telling you when you look like a badger. And I thought that was amazing that they did a callback to the very beginning of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's hilarious. And also the, the, just the use of really aggressive and strong classical music is so incredible. It really gives the tone such an oomph, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely tell Yorgos just loves blasting music. Like, this and The Lobster are the only two I've seen from him, and they're, like, you know, about 50% of the movie is just music blasting in my ear, and I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah, oh, this movie didn't win screenplay, are you sure? No, it was expected to, though. Unbelievable. Who, who beat it? <laughs> You're gonna be mad. <laughs> Green Book. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, uh, we had to end the favorite on a really dark comedic joke. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on, Sammy. Of course. Thank you for having me. For our next film, we have another blockbuster hitting the podcast, and it is going to be the first of a franchise that I haven't seen before. But our co-host here to discuss this seems to be quite a fan, and we are going to be discussing the well-regarded film Mission Impossible Fallout. So to help discuss this film for the next segment, we have Isaac. How are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Of course. Of all the films of 2018, you had to pick the one from a franchise I haven't seen before. Uh, What was it about Mission Impossible Fallout? that made you want us to discuss it today? Yeah, I think there's a sadistic part of me that thought it would be fun to talk about this movie with you, having only seen, like, the last one. But uh, it might not be the best technical movie of 2018. For me, it was, like, probably my first real amazing, like, theater experience. Um, To see this, like, it's kind of like one of those films, like Top Gun Maverick. The bigger the screen, the higher the definition, the louder the sound, like just fantastic. And I didn't see my first movie in theaters until 2016, as lame as that is. So 2018 came around with Mission Impossible Fallout, like rocked my world. It was fantastic. Love love this movie. Happy to talk about it. Yeah, I'm assuming they did not make a Mission Impossible in 2016 or 2017. So this would have been your first one in theaters? Uh, Definitely was. I don't remember the year of rogue nation but um yeah rogue nation 2015 so uh yeah awesome experience went to see it with my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife i guess that was the uh one of the contributing factors i'm gonna have to say that must have won her over right she thought wow this is this is the man for me he he likes fallout well i mean she fell asleep during the rewatch so probably not but you know i've i've gotta i gotta find some reason to explain why my wife is still with me yeah exactly I was going to ask, what was your first experience with the film? But it looks like you already kind of touched on that. How many times do you revisit the Mission Impossible films? Or is this one they kind of just watch by itself? Do you watch all the films together all the time? Or is it kind of just this one as your kind of go-to? I've probably gone through the whole series probably about three times. Um, I think my favorite still to date is probably the fourth one, uh, Ghost Protocol which was really a, a major turning point in the franchise um, to when they 
really started taking things really big, crazy stunts. We had some, a few in the first couple. And then the fourth one comes around, you got the Burj Khalifa scene and kind of leads up to this one where they're doing these ridiculous stunts for, for no reason. Um, I'm kind of interested to know kind of what your thoughts were coming in, having no idea, like, were you lost completely during this whole movie or were you able to enjoy it as just like a solo standalone experience? Yeah, I probably was lost for a lot of it, but, you know, it's not the most complex film. So I was able to pretty much pick up the majority of this movie. So you kind of led me astray here uh, to let me think that this random old guy that's not even really a well-regarded actor was the main villain. Because when we sat down, you know, a little peek behind the curtains for the listeners here. Uh, You know, I, I work with Isaac, so I see him regularly. and. He decided to tell me that this, this random old guy is going to be the, the main villain of the movie. Because I was kind of asking him, you know, who, who's the cool villain? Because I assume like James Bond, there's got to be some badass villain in every movie that they kind of have fun with. And so I kind of, you know, I assumed that was going to be the case with Mission Impossible. He told me it was some old fart that, you know, is mostly in smaller indie movies kind of raised a red flag. So I kind of went in, Isaac, with the understanding that there's probably like a main villain that we just don't know about going in. I went into this movie kind of quickly looking out for, all right, who's like the secret main villain? Who's like a well-known actor that can really ham it up and be fun for Mission Impossible? I figured Isaac was throwing me off. And so for about the first hour of this movie, maybe 30 to 45 minutes, uh, I was pretty confident Simon Pegg was going to be the main villain. (laughs) Like, I, I like, would I would sell out for a Mission Impossible or any movie where Simon Pegg plays the main villain. Yeah, I was like, he's a pretty good actor and he's really fun. He's really good at hamming it up. Like I thought he'd be such a fun villain. And I figured, okay, you know, he's Tom Cruise's main guy. You know, uh, he's definitely gonna turn on him at some point. And of course it wasn't him that turned on Tom Cruise. It, it was someone else. Uh, and then I found out at the end of the movie, I looked up. Simon Pegg, and I realized he was in every other Mission Impossible movie. So that would have been a huge uh, reveal to the fan base if Simon Pegg, after six movies, was secretly the villain all along. That's true. I suppose I kind of did mislead you with, with Sean Harris, who is who does play kind of a, a role in this movie as one of the villains. But And this is where knowing the franchise helps, because Sean Harris is the main big baddie in uh number five rogue nation and so in this one they really don't emphasize his character a lot they don't feel like they need to introduce him or his motivations and he kind of plays this i don't know chess master in the background who's um you know kind of using uh henry cavill's character to kind of for like mutual gain these two terrorists kind of having these the same idea and so, yeah, if you're going in looking for a Bond villain, um, that's probably not what you're going to get. I would say that one difference between the franchises and, and with this movie in particular, in the Bond franchise, the villains, ton of shine. They're, you know, almost sometimes better than the protagonist. When it comes to a Tom Cruise movie, it's all about Tom Cruise, baby. And uh, he doesn't share his spotlight with, with any of his villains, per se. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this is definitely the Tom Cruise show, more so than even the Bond films. Like, I feel like Sean Connery 
and uh, even like Roger Moore and Daniel Craig to an extent. I feel like they all have uh, a pretty strong camera time. You know, it is Bond, who's an iconic character, but when it comes to Mission Impossible, it's not even like, you know, we don't even learn that much about the villain. Like, you know, uh, Henry Cavill, who I think was probably my favorite of the movie. I just thought he was so funny and so like, he was really into acting. Like, he was really into this movie. You can tell the actor was really, I'm going to be a villain. I'm not Superman. I'm a bad guy. Like, he got really into it. So I liked him a lot. Um, but it was still the Tom Cruise show. Yeah, this was definitely his show. One of the things that I really enjoy about this movie, compared to the rest of the franchise, I would say this is probably Tom Cruise's best emotional performance. So, you know, yes, he's got his ridiculous stunts and, um, amazing cinematography, but um, I would say the the movies before this were really focused on just him as this agent. Whereas this one, everything he's doing, you sense this kind of desperation of like um, he's always chasing, trying to fix his his mistake. Um, we start at the very beginning. He makes the decision to to save uh, Ving Rhames' character Luther, um, and in doing so, you know, gives up the plutonium. So he's always chasing after the plutonium. He's trying to save his ex-wife, who he feels like is in this predicament because he married her in the first place. So he's kind of always chasing, trying to catch up, trying to solve the problems that he feels like he's created, which is a depth to the character that wasn't really present as much so in the previous movies, which I think is what leads to probably one of his best performances in the franchise. For those that haven't seen this movie, Isaac, do you want to maybe give a quick 30 second explanation as to what the film's about maybe as a reason why people should check out this franchise yeah so uh mission impossible fallout we have uh, tom cruise is chasing after uh, the remnants of a secret organization from uh, the previous film he's taken the head off the snake but the the body is still wriggling around so he's chasing after them and he um is trying to secure some plutonium weapons uh, he ends up losing those by prioritizing one of his teammates, and now they're floating around. Uh, meanwhile, they're uh, trying to um, prevent a, another unknown secret alias person by the name of John Lark from coming into contact with those weapons and using it to, you know, generally blow up the world, that kind of stuff. Sprinkle in there, you know, your ludicrous action scenes and uh, your general Tom Cruise-ness. It's a great time definitely a lot of huge set pieces and action moments but of all of the moments throughout this runtime is there one scene that really sticks out to you isaac i wonder if maybe on the second or third watch is there a scene that really kind of hits home with you as your personal favorite moment so i think the biggest and, and best stunt well regarded is the the halo jump the the skydiving scene from the airplane to get into this club where this secret meeting is going up which is just, you know, ridiculous. They actually jumped out of a plane, you know, doing this free fall with the photographer. Um, incredible scene. On my rewatch, I think the thing that kind of stuck out to me was there was no reason to do this high-risk, you know, ridiculous maneuver because they used it to get onto the roof of this building to sneak into this club where, I don't know, man, there's got to be maybe 60,000, 70,000 people at this rave in Paris. I'm like, you couldn't, you know, fake an armband to get into this rave where half of, you know, the population of the city is. But that's Tom Cruise for you. 
So I think my favorite part this time walking, walking through it was probably um, the scene where Henry Cavill's character actually gets outed as John Lark to the rest of the team. They uh, confuse him using Simon Pegg's character uh, because it's so ludicrous. There's so many like plot twists. No, I'm in control. No, I'm in control. And uh, it was almost hilarious to watch. Um, and I would say there's a lot of things in this that are so wacky. I think that's what makes me love this movie even more. Um, this idea of, you know, we're just going to keep twisting the plot over and over and over until it's almost illogical, but it somehow just keeps rolling and you just, you just keep wanting to, to find out where they're going next, partly because you just want to see the next stunt. Like it's action at its finest. It doesn't all have to make sense. It doesn't have to be perfect storytelling. Just get us from place to place and then wow us with these visuals. Yeah, this might sound like an insult, but it's not. But Mission Impossible, based on the one film, you know, I'll have to watch the other ones to see if this kind of still holds water. It feels like James Bond with the tone of Fast and Furious. Like, you know, I don't like James Bond or Fast and Furious. <laughs> Those two franchises I don't enjoy. And I like this movie more than pretty much every film from both of those franchises. So that's a testament of itself for Mission Impossible Fallout. But it's a spy film. Like, you know, it's espionage. It's got all the same kind of hijinks and action moments as a James Bond film. But it has like that comedic wackiness that's just almost on the verge of parody that you would find in a Fast and Furious film that kind of makes this movie very fun. I agree with you that the them jumping off this them jumping off the plane and falling down onto the roof of the club, which is the only thing I knew about going into this movie. I thought it was this movie, but I didn't know for sure. But I definitely have heard of Tom Cruise. You won't believe it. In the newest movie, he jumps off a fucking plane. This dude's nuts. Like, I definitely remember hearing that a couple of years ago. And so I assumed it was this one. But it is insane that that's their way of getting into the club. When you know, they have a little mechanic in this movie that they introduce where they can swap faces. They could just like make a random face onto them as they enter the club. Like that seems way easier. You can also do it by setting up your machine on the lid of the toilet in the bathroom, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't take that long to make those masks. Clearly they're trying to do it in a washroom. So, you know, might've been a smarter choice than to, jump off of a plane but tom cruise has to tom cruise and they had the budget to jump off that plane and you know what god damn it they're gonna fucking do it i think it's pretty funny too there's kind of a self-awareness when it comes to mission impossible 6 in the in the previous of the franchise and you'll see this when if you uh when you go for your rank podcast of mission impossible which i'm looking forward to the mass have at times in this franchise gotten really out of control and it feels like christopher mcquarrie understood that and maybe talk to Tom Cruise into, you know, we need to take a step back on the mask. So, you know, there is the scene with Simon Pegg's character that they use the mask. But then the other times we see it, we see it used with Wolf Blitzer, which is probably one of the funniest moments of the film for me. You know, hilarious and kind of parodying on itself. And then trying to use it in the bathroom and the thing mm-hmm. malfunctioning and blowing up and melting the face and... So just really good self-awareness there as a fan of the franchise. Love to see that. Sorry, I might have just misunderstood here. Are you saying the mask thing is a continuous 
storyline or like a continuous gag in all the films. Oh yeah, it's oh, it's continuous. God. I think in uh, especially in Mission Impossible Two, regarded as by far the worst of the franchise, it gets really out of hand. Like it's it's all it's. I, I won't spoil it for you, okay. but it's it's a lot of masks and a lot of people you think are wearing masks that aren't, and people that are wearing masks that you don't think they are. And it's, but yeah, uh, masks have been in the franchise since the first movie. Wow. Okay. You straight up blew my mind. So I am clearly just going off of James Bond here because it's the only other spy action film I've ever seen in my life. So it's got to be similar. And in James Bond, every movie, they introduce like a gimmick, like a fun little weapon that he uses. And it's like a continuous weapon throughout the whole film. But when that movie's over, that gimmick is over. And then they have like a new weapon that they implement in the next film. Like it's a different gadget every time. So I assumed this was just a one-time gadget. I didn't realize this was like a genuine plot line in the entire franchise. Uh, okay. It's, it's that and Tom Cruise running. Uh, if, yeah. uh, <laughs> for as many times as we have a long take of Tom Cruise running, which, you know, excellent take in this movie as well, we also have the mask. It's a, it's a staple for sure. Okay, that's good to know. I just thought that was just the gimmick for the film. I didn't realize it was going to be for all of them, um, which is good news because I thought the masks are super fun. I almost kind of have to disagree with you, maybe on a rewatch, uh, which, you know, I will rewatch this when we eventually do the Mission Impossible ranking. But I kind of thought the scene where they dupe Henry Cavill, I didn't like it because that was the only scene where I knew what was going on. And maybe they wanted the audience in on it very early. But to me, the second they went to go get that guy and trade faces with them, I instantly knew, okay, they're taking the real guy and they're leaving Simon and Peg behind to trick Henry Cavill. Like I, if, I don't know why. Maybe the audience was supposed to know or maybe I kind of just kind of caught onto the gimmick early on. But I instantly knew, okay, this is it. They got Henry right where they want him. I didn't fall for it at all. Like I, I knew it way before Henry Cavill did. I knew that guy was fucked pretty early on in that scene. I thought they kind of hinted to the audience a little bit, a little too many winkings to us that I kind of caught on. So I was tricked throughout this entire film. Like, man, this movie was just a bunch of, holy shit, what the fuck's going on? And that was the only scene where I went, okay, I, 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 I'm caught up now. I know how this movie works. Uh, do you think that was supposed to be the intent? Like, do you think, like, like, were you in the audience aware of this in 2018 that Henry Cavill was about to get duped? I think um, they're pretty good with their camera tricks. Like, it, you're, like you said, it is hinting there. So I think um, being astute, you kind of can see it coming, which which I like, and on a rewatch, definitely you'll even see that more. I like the contrast that they do um, between this scene and kind of some of the other action scenes that happen, because in this scene, it's, it's just constant twisting, and it feels like nothing is, is going right. You have, you know, I tried to count the twists, and I think I still lost count, right? You have, so they dupe the guys that they were working with to steal Sean Harris, and then they dupe Henry, Henry Cavill, and then just when they think they have it all figured out, then the CIA, Angela Bassett's character, shows up on like a FaceTime call, like, oh, I just wanted to give you guys a quick ring and tell you that I'm going to steal him now. But then, no, the guys that she sent in within like 10 seconds turn and it turns out they're actually working for Henry Cavill. It's absolutely bonkers. Uh, it's, it's definitely not the best writing, but I found it so funny on this rewatch. Particularly also... Alec Baldwin trying to, you know, pick a fist fight with Henry Cavill. Um, <laughs> my wife was watching the first half of this before she fell asleep. 
Turns out the only person she dislikes more than Tom Cruise is apparently uh, Alec Baldwin. So that was pretty funny to see him, try, uh, those two, try and duke it out. Um, just pure comedy throughout that entire sequence. It's very campy. It is very fun. I, I do like the scene, but it was the only time like I knew what was going on. And maybe it's because it took me a little while. Maybe everybody kind of caught on the entire time as to what was going on. And I was you know, trying to catch up with the rest of the audience there at the beginning. Because my favorite scene... And it's kind of occurring to me that I think everybody was aware of what was happening, except for me and the guy they were duping, was when he was laying in the hospital and they were all like tricking him with the television and everything. I was duped. Like, like I had no fucking idea what was going on. I thought this guy was actually in a hospital and I thought that they were actually like trying to help him and figure something out. And then when they were like, we got him and the walls fell my mind was fucking blown. I was not mentally prepared for what the hell just happened. And then the dude that was in the TV just like walks on stage with them, like fucking iconic. It was so funny. It's pretty great. It's funny that they had to set all of this up in, I don't know, I'm assuming, you know, 24 hours, create this elaborate plan. And the entire goal of it is, hey, can you give me your password to your iPhone? Like what, how much money did Apple give to this studio to be like listen we understand you are this fictional impossible mission force you can duplicate someone's face and vocal patterns but you cannot hack into our iphone within the first 10 minutes of your movie the movie started very strong for me that was such a good beginning i'm fucking bummed so yeah i think that was my favorite scene uh but you could definitely tell tom cruise's character was a total theater kid how he just set up that whole stage for really for no reason, just because he really wanted to make a fake hospital. You gotta love it. Yeah. Like they were like, couldn't we just like twist his arm or like, you know, cut one of his fingers off and until he like agrees to open up his phone and Tom Cruise is like, nah, 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 nah. Trust me. We got to build a hospital. And you, and you got to wear that suit. It'll be great. Trust me. It's all about the the overkill, right? If you can do something simply that doesn't belong in this franchise. Yeah. yeah the, the theatrics of it all is what makes Tom Cruise... Yeah, he, he's always fun. He's always hamming it up. He's, he, he's never like a 1 to 10. He's, he always, always ramps it up to 100. That's just how he is. A lot of like strong... Like, I wouldn't say strong acting. It's Tom Cruise. But, but a lot of like emotional acting from Tom Cruise in this role... With that scene, you've got him there, you know, pretending that this the world's ended, you know, really putting on this long face. And then we also have like another dream sequence or daydream sequence where he imagines himself having to shoot an innocent cop if he goes along with this heist. Yeah. And, you know, again, not the depth that you normally see from his character in this franchise. I really like that aspect of it. And I think it's one of the stronger aspects of this movie in the franchise as a whole. That's a good point. Uh, I didn't really think the film was that emotional but in in hindsight i do think they play into that really well to, to make you care and to actually be invested into what's going on like i do think that dream sequence you were talking about like that was done really well to make you realize why he needs to go this other route uh, I, I think that they show that stuff pretty well what was your uh, thoughts on that uh paris chase scene i would say the action in pretty much any scene in this movie uh was top notch honestly i think that's the strong point for me uh i i don't know if it's because most blockbusters of the last 10 years have been 
kind of, you know, little quick cuts toned down. But especially the Paris chase scene, uh, you can tell that they they cut, like, they hold those shots, like, a couple seconds longer than I expect every time. Like, you know, most action films are, like, cut, cut, cut. But when he's, like, driving around and it's all twisting and turning, uh, the camera work flows with the cars. It works really well. And then I, I, think, I think the ending's hilarious. I think you think that they got him. He, you know, kind of flips off his motorcycle. And then he just jumps into a vent and he's all the way in the sewers and he escapes. Like, it's just, it's very fun how, you, even when you think he's got, uh, nobody can get Tom Cruise. He's invincible, baby. This, uh, this scene is great because it's a little bit different thematically from what you normally see. You normally see them have a plan and then everything goes wrong and then they're scrambling to fix it. But in this scene, kind of starting right from the beginning when he rams the truck off of the, the road into the, into the river, they make it seem like everything is a mistake when it's not. Um, you have him ramming the truck into the water. You're like, oh, no, did he mistime it? You know, uh, what's going on? Is he trying to kill him? What, you, you don't understand. Then you see the welders underneath cutting open the truck. He wedges the truck in an alleyway, and you're like, oh, crap, yeah. he just got stuck. And then, no, that's actually the plan to block off the people behind. Um, and then again, yeah, he skids off the motorcycle. It seems like, you know, he's been caught. But it turns out that's actually the point he was trying to get to anyways. Great stuff. It's just kind of that misdirection um, variance from the rest of the, of the themes of the franchise and real fresh stuff. I love it. Okay, yeah, I didn't know if that was normal for most of the movies. But yeah, I, I kept thinking he was kind of fucking up there. I was like, oh, this isn't like Tom Cruise. He's normally perfect. And then... Five seconds later, I go, oh, no, he is perfect. He planned this shit, man, of course. I liked the action. To me, that was the highlight. You know, I, I didn't get as emotionally invested in some of the stuff. But when it came to the action, uh, I think it delivered for sure. I assume you were probably completely in the dark regarding uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, right? That probably made no sense at all. Uh, I feel like most characters didn't make a whole lot of sense, to be honest with you. Like, they were like trying to find this one guy, and I was like, "What? Well, why is he important? What? What? Why do I care about him?" Or like, someone shows up. What was it? Um, a girl showed up in the bathroom, and Tom Hanks and, Hen and Henry Cavill were like, "Oh, whoa! This girl just showed up!" And Tom Hanks is like, "Oh my god, we have such a history together." And Henry Cavill's like, "Do you two know each other?" And I, I, I was Henry Cavill in that moment. I was like, "Do these two know each other? Like, <laughs> what, what the fuck's going on?" Yeah, her. Again, I think similar to Sean Harris's character, they don't go into any depth. This movie's made for fans of the franchise. They don't go into depth um, trying to explain any of the characters who've been kind of introduced before. Same goes with Simon Pegg's character and, and, uh, and Luther as well. If you don't know what's happened previously, like, they just don't expect you to go watch this movie, um, which is maybe why they have such a great fan base is, is they don't treat the fan base like, you know, they're just the, the floor and they're just trying to bring in new people. Like, this is made for the fans. I guess they don't really address a lot of the characters uh, that they probably have introduced in other films, but I feel like they still keep it pretty vague and basic. That, and maybe that's why they don't delve into their characters too much. Like, you just know they're friends of Tom Cruise. You know, uh, you kind of know what's going on. Like, I felt like, story-wise with the film, I, I was never really lost, except for maybe, like, why the hell... Do they react to that person walking into the room or something like that? So I feel like it's still 
pretty good at opening the gates for new people that haven't seen the films before, especially when they take five years for each movie. I think they have to keep in mind when filming these, okay, like we have to kind of not make it too complex with the relationships of past characters and maybe focus on newer ones. And maybe that's why Henry Cavill, unless he's been in other ones, he's definitely like the second main character. Like he definitely has the most meat on his bone. And maybe it's because he's not from a past Mission Impossible film. They kind of have, you know, they can build up on him as much as they want because nobody's going to be confused with his character in the film. You know, I was pretty keen into what was going on with Henry Cavill. So I think it's still pretty welcoming to new people. If you haven't seen the other films, I kind of knew what was going on. Um, But I get what you're saying that they still don't like water it down for the fans, right? Like they didn't have a scene that they sat everybody down and Tom Cruise was like, well, this is how I knew Simon Pegg from the last 10 years. You, you, oh, you really helped me out when we were in Turkey, that one movie. And uh, man, this is why you're such a good friend of mine. Like, they don't kind of like, you know, <laughs> like the writing isn't cringy bad trying to like explain who everybody is. I think there's one scene where uh, Luther sits down with uh, maybe Rebecca Ferguson's character, Ilsa, and explains to her the basically the storyline of of Ethan Hunt and his wife who's at this medical camp but that's because she hadn't been seen I think since the third third movie maybe the fourth in a like a brief cameo um so there was that one kind of very forced dialogue exposition but uh for the most part um it's it's pretty fluid Henry Cavill yeah his debut in the series um I think he does a great job he's equally like serious and intimidating but also kind of cartoonish there's no way i'm getting in front of that guy especially in the bathroom scene um and especially he does this thing where he like they call it reloading his arms it's become like just this famous thing that he's done in this movie just the way that he like lifts up his fist to go into the fight but then we also have a scene where he's flying in a helicopter completely oblivious to the fact that Tom Cruise is climbing this helicopter behind him and like spinning around on this payload hanging down below. Um, it's, it's a really funny mix of we want this guy to be terrifying, but also we're going to paint him as kind of oblivious as well. Yeah, I think he was, once again, he was my favorite part about the movie. I thought his character worked super well in like, like I said, it's like a parody of James Bond to an, like, you know, to an extent. It's very self-aware and comical with how it plays into whether it be the masks or just these characters Uh, and i think henry plays into the intensity you need from like an espionage action with the comedy essence Uh, anything else you wanted to say about mission impossible fallout isaac great sixth movie of a franchise um it's not too often that you get this deep into a franchise and you're looking at some of the best stuff that the franchise is, is making. But uh, Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise seem to be like a, a really great team. And I think Tom Cruise right now is just like on a, a fever high, especially coming out of movies like Top Gun Maverick, where this guy's just mastered the craft. So uh, very excited for Mission Impossible 7. And eight, a two-parter. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fun time. Thanks for having me. It was great to discuss Mission Impossible. On to the next movie. For the next 2018 film for discussion, we have probably the most well-known film 
obviously, for the well-regarded masterpiece Velocipaster. And to help discuss this instant classic from 2018, we have Austin. How are you doing today? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well. Doing well. You picked this film mostly as a joke. I don't even think you realized you were uh, <laughs> volunteering to do the podcast. But why is Velocipaster obviously the best film of 2018? Um, so yeah, you're, you're right. I did kind of recommend it as a joke, but I thought you were just saying like what you wanted to discuss. I didn't know it was like what I wanted to discuss, but I I looked through my 2018 like watches on Letterboxd. And then I noticed that Velocipaster was in 2018. I didn't even know that it was released in 2018. Yeah, it's a hilarious movie. I think you actually were the one who introduced me to it. Like, I hadn't known about it, but you were the one who got our group together to watch it. Um, And I think it's just a hilarious, ridiculous movie. And I would say, genuinely, it is a good movie. (laughs) Which, I don't know if that's a hot take, but I, I do think it's actually a good movie. I really like this movie. I feel like most so bad they're good movies. You know, when you look at them, they are on paper bad. And I guess this film on paper is probably bad, but I think it's just so self-aware and so, you know, uh, conscious about how ridiculous this concept is that it plays into it so well that I think the movie's great. Like, this isn't one of those, I give it a two star and say, what a masterpiece, like what I would do with Sharknado. This movie I gave a four star and I kind of stand by because it's just that absurd. Oh yeah, I definitely agree. I've seen it now three times and I'm pretty sure every time I've watched it, I've like, slowly moved my rating up a little bit each time because because every time I watch it I watch it like with a new person and I have like an even better time like sort of watching everyone react to it and what you're saying about like the self-awareness um is very true as well I think it kind of tiptoes the line between like self-aware and like so bad it's good like so well because I know there's a lot of movies that are trying to be bad where it is just comes off as trying too hard to be funny that it ends up not being funny but i think the lost pastor actually does a really good job with it like all the jokes land and it's just so ridiculously self-aware it's just hilarious the whole way through yeah i think something like the third kissing booth is trying to go off of the cringy moments that it had in the first two films that people ironically thought was hilarious and try to make intentionally cringy moments in the third movie which just ended up being really painful to watch It's a hard line to draw when you're trying to be intentionally bad comedy, but genuinely good comedy at the same time, which is something Velocipaster does do really well. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one that I got our friend group to watch. I've gotten a few friend groups to watch, and I've had the same experience where I've seen it three times now, just like you. And each time, I I do think it's funnier and funnier every viewing. I think the first time I watched it, I probably gave it a one and a half star. I like, you know, it was kind of there with Sharknado where I thought it was so bad it's good. But by the second viewing and third viewing, I, I genuinely just think it's really good. I do think it's funnier on rewatches because you start to pick up on a lot of hilarious foreshadowing. Like, I think this film intentionally... <laughs> the twist at the end. Yeah, yeah, I think this film intentionally <laughs> was playing into 
oh, this movie's going to be so bad it's good. People are going to keep showing their friends and they're going to keep realizing it's funny. Like, I think it, it was even planned to be really good on future viewings because it's really, mm-hmm. really funny when you watch it a few times. Like, I, I would watch this regularly and I try to get my groups of friends to check it out because I just think it's a, it's a good time to crack open some beers and check out a dinosaur that is also a priest. Oh, yeah. And, like... I think when you, people talk about, like, So Bad It's Good movies, the obvious pick for, like, you know, the, the top of the top for that is The Room. Yeah. But I, I think this also, like, sort of is better. Like, not, like, a better So Bad It's Good movie, but I think the movie itself is actually better. Like, it's a little more well-made than The Room. Have you seen The Room, by the way? I have seen The Room, yeah. And they're kind of different feels. The Room is obviously... Yeah a film where somebody thought they were making a masterpiece and they just made it a total misfire. And this film Mm -hmm. is intentionally just being exactly what it is. Like the room is not self-aware and this film is. So it feels very different. Oh yeah. So for those that haven't seen this film, which I imagine is a majority of people, uh, Austin, did you want to maybe quickly give them a brief 30 second explanation on what it is or why they should maybe check it out? Okay, I did not prepare for that. Okay, let me think really quick. Let me gather my thoughts. <laughs> Sounds good. I, yeah. wanna, I don't want to mess up. Yeah, um, try and piece this together. So, okay, so the film starts out with a priest who his parents died, like, immediately. Like, literally, like, seconds into the movie, his parents died in a car explosion. And then he took time off of being a priest to go to China, I think. And then when he was there, he got, he picked up a claw off of the ground, which like cut his hand and then it gave him dinosaur powers, I guess, <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. Um, so essentially he turned into like a werewolf that like, instead of turning into a werewolf at night, you turn into a velociraptor. And then he falls in love with this girl and like there's a bunch of priest stuff that goes down like, oh, you can't be seeing this girl. And then he wants to clean up humanity because he, he thinks he has the power to like rid the world of bad people at this point. And there's a lot more. I think, I'm, I mean, that's like the general gist of it. That's obviously way more than 30 seconds, but there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. You did a good job trying to piece it together here. And the film takes quite a few wacky twists that I'm glad Austin didn't mention because you need to watch this by yourself. Or, sorry, (laughs) with a group of friends and not by yourself. You got to watch with a group of friends for the first time, having no idea what's about to happen. Best way to watch it is with like a big group of people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You you need a large group, uh, and you all need to go in with the right mindset. If everyone's ready to watch uh, So Bad It's Good kind of film, uh, you're going to be surprised at just how great this movie is. I I think it's a good time. Mm. I normally ask people what's their first experience with this film, but we both kind of already touched on it. Our our first experience, well, your first experience was our group watching this one night. What was the other two experiences that you watched? Did you watch with your family or with some other friends? So I watched that obviously with you and the, the other people in our group for the first time. And then I told my, my roommates, my then roommates about it, like when I was in college. I think they had all heard of it at the time because it it's sort of like notorious. Um, but I told them how funny it was. And then a few weeks later, one of them 
I think he was on a date or something, and he brought this girl over to our apartment, and then he, she was like, what, what should we watch? And he was like, we should watch Velocipaster. So then we got everyone together and watched Velocipaster with him and this one girl that he went on a date with. And I don't know if it went well, to be honest, like date-wise, but we had a good time. <laughs> um, and then the second time, or the third time, I was on a trip with two of my friends from college and we just, we were, we were like sitting at our Airbnb, like waiting to, for it to be nighttime because we were going to go to a bar later on. So we were like sort of in the mid, midday time where there wasn't really anything else to do. So we decided to watch a movie and I suggested we watch Velocipaster because uh, one of them had seen it with me before and then the other one hadn't seen it. Um, so I decided why not introduce him to it and we had an amazing time what would you say your favorite scene is from this movie if, if you had to pick one I'm sure there's multiple wow there's there's a lot to pick from to be <laughs> honest I would say the best the best part from this movie is like the absolutely ridiculous sex scene that they have it's one of the most absurd things i've ever seen in my life like it was like a montage sex scene where like they had a bunch of past like interactions of him and this girl just sort of playing over like the the scene of them having sex it was very weird very awkward and really funny and i think i remember the song that was playing was also really it was I don't even remember what the song was, but I remember it was a really funny song. Like, it kind of didn't fit in with it. But I would say that was my favorite part. I think it's probably also my favorite sex scene that's in any movie because it's just, <laughs> it's just so out there and ridiculous. It's just so funny. Yeah, I could definitely agree with you on that. I definitely think it might be the best sex scene in any film. I don't know what, I don't know what it is about it, but it is absurd uh, especially the color palette it's just so all over the place it's it feels like it's uh the most intentionally artistic moment just to really point at how hilarious uh these kind of scenes are in film to watch two random people have sex it's so over the top i i think my favorite scene is the big twist near the end i, I won't get into it here but i feel like that's got to be my favorite if i had to pick one that i can actually talk about uh, I think it might be when the merman is confessing, like when, when they're in the confession. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just that, that is the funniest moment of the movie, I think. Like, I, I think it's hilarious how he's the priest on one end of the booth and you got merman who's just the worst human being ever just sitting there. I don't know why he's confessing, but he's just cackling at how terrible he is. He had a lot of really funny lines, too. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head, but I do remember he had hilarious lines. Do you remember any of those lines? Um, I don't remember any of the lines in the confession scene, but I do remember the first time we see him, he goes up to uh, the pastor's girlfriend, who he eventually has the sex scene with, and asks her, what's my name? And she goes merman he's like why is it say it and she's like because you're always swimming in bitches and he's like because i'm always swimming in bitches <laughs> i completely forgot about that oh man that is so funny i only remember that because that's the only every time i hear the name merman i think of 
why he's called Merman. So that that's why I remember that line. I haven't seen this movie since we all saw it that one day. So it's been quite a while for me, to be honest with you. I was trying yeah, to it's like two years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. I've been living off that hype ever since. <laughs> Nothing's ever topped it. It really hasn't. Uh, I've rewatched every film for this podcast. I watched it like the night before. I didn't need to watch this. I, I remember the entire movie. I've, I've, me- I've, I've memorized it. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about like rewatching it, but I feel like you kind of don't have to. <laughs> and I don't have like the right people to watch it with right now. Like, yeah, you I need would a group be watching too. it by myself. I so. agree. Yeah. I couldn't really watch it by myself last night to be kind of embarrassing and pathetic <laughs> and my wife just walks in on me and i'm just in the middle of watching the merman uh, you know it'd be embarrassing i couldn't do that <laughs> he just wants everyone to know why he's called the merman <laughs> yeah yeah well what a guy um is, is he your favorite character or who would be your favorite out of like you know the core cast of uh you know lunatic characters i would say definitely him yeah yeah, I, I, think, um, I think he's the best. I think a couple of the priest characters are really funny, too. A lot of eccentric people. I also love the difference between uh, she's a hooker, correct? And he's a priest. <laughs> and so, yeah. I like, so I like the one moment where they like both need to rely on the Velocipaster, which is part dinosaur, part priest. And she goes... I don't even believe in God. And he goes, I don't believe in dinosaurs. And that's the ultimate, <laughs> that's the ultimate take team. But just to correct you, he, she's not just any hooker. She's a hooker doctor lawyer. Oh, yes. How, how could I forget? Yeah, she's, she's quite a profession. Yeah, she's, a, she's a, a hooker, but she also, well, that's what her job is on the side, but she's also in... Both medical school and law school at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a film that you should watch with friends. Uh, really, and it's also probably the most rewatchable film. I do wonder if this is the one I've seen the most out of every 2018 film. I think so. I've seen this one three times. Uh, maybe I've seen Spider-Verse three times. Maybe it was. Yeah, I was going to say that one as well. Like, those are the two most rewatchable for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen them both three times, if I was to make a guess. Um, but Spider-Verse, the third time was for this podcast. So I didn't even need to rewatch this for the podcast. It mm-hmm. could have been four. It was close. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that's everything with Velocipaster. If you guys want to check out uh, So Bad It's Good, I do think Oscar was right where it was kind of was kind of like a running joke that people were aware of, I believe, two years ago. It was like a trending meme i believe online of a photo of the movie that said this is real and it's on amazon prime it's still on amazon prime if you guys want to check it out uh i feel like most people saw that photo and went oh yeah that's hilarious and then never actually watched it and i'm here to say you probably should absolutely yeah anything else you want to say about velocipaster uh just i mean just to reiterate uh if any of you are planning on watching the movie um, get a good group of people, get some drinks, if you drink, um, and just have a good time. Go in with, with the expectation that you're just going to have a fun time. You don't, you don't need to really pay attention too much. Just, just go and have fun. Yeah, I also think the runtime really helps the rewatchability of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you could just throw this on after a few drinks, and it's super quick for the watch. I believe it's, what, 70 minutes? 
Yeah, it's super short. It's like one of the shortest movies I've ever seen. Like full full movies, at least. Um, I think it's like about 70, 70 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, I just double checked. It's seventy five minutes. A, a super quick watch. It's, Very short. Yeah. So I think that's what helps too. You know, I feel like long. So like, how long's the room? I can't say for sure, but I feel like uh, I think it's like an an hour and forty minutes. Okay. I think it's that's like good. a. 100 a little under 100 minutes yeah okay i was gonna say anything over 100 minutes if you're drinking and hanging out with friends you kind of start losing the buzz you know you gotta mm-hmm. have a nice quick laugh out loud and then actually do something else with some friends uh, yeah this is one of those perfect movies so that's everything for velocipaster we can move on to the next film For our next film up for discussion, we are moving on from comedy to horror uh, to discuss probably the most well-recognized horror film of 2018, and that would be Hereditary with Joe. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Quinnen. I haven't uh, talked to you in a while. I'm excited to talk Hereditary with you today. Um, It's been uh, definitely one of my favorite horror movies of recent memory. Can't wait to discuss it. Yeah, Hereditary is definitely one that stands out the most from, you know, modern horror over the last decade or so has mostly been either jump scares or kind of continuous franchises, whether it be the Conjuring series. But I feel like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel like lately we've gotten uh, a few unique horror films and it kind of starts in 2018 here. Uh, Get Out, I guess, was 2017, but in 18... Mm. We got Quiet Place, which we also discussed on the podcast, and I think Hereditary is one that stands out the most. Yeah, I agree, and um, and also in addition, you got I don't know if you're going to be discussing 2019 movies anytime, but uh, you know, Midsommar definitely uh, stands out to me as well. Uh, another Ari Aster film, and then great mention with the with Get Out as well and Jordan Peele. Yeah, I feel like we've gotten a lot of good horror films. Uh, and this is one that really feels intense, that still a lot of audiences watched. I believe this up until Everything Everywhere All at Once a few months ago. This was A24's most successful film. Uh, and it's funny that this yeah. is the one that everyone went to check out. It's a great movie. It got so much buzz to the point that uh, some people think it might be overrated. Uh, I am not one of those people, though, Quentin. <laughs> that's good that's good that's good if you thought it was overrated and you were here uh, to talk about it, that'd be a little awkward but yeah uh it's actually kind of shocking how many people like this movie. i think this movie is pretty terrifying and pretty creepy that i'm shocked as many people like it as much as they do like this should be one that i would assume most casual audiences would check out and just despise it just seems like that kind of film well that and uh and a lot of a24's catalog but uh you know, that's, I think, uh, I think A24 kind of has a reputation as really a, a film lover's uh, production company. And, uh, and Hereditary definitely has gone a long way in making that reputation. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about Hereditary lately on the podcast. We did an A24 draft, which this was obviously one of the first ones picked. And then we did a actress bracket a week before that. And... One of the actresses was obviously Tony Collette, so Hereditary made it very far uh, into the draft. So, or sorry, into the bracket. So uh, we've been just—it's you know, September is the month of uh, 
hereditary it ended up being i don't know it kind of just worked out well for uh for that film and the month of tony collette who is just uh it really makes this movie yeah yeah this yeah. is definitely a tony collette led film uh well, why yeah. was this the movie that you were leaning towards for 2018 i raised out the question to everybody what's your favorite film of the year what would you like to discuss and this was the one that you landed it on. Uh, well, what is it about this movie that you think represents 2018? Well, I was torn, really, between this one and, uh, and mid-'90s was the other one I wanted to discuss. But, but I went with this one because uh, I was a little bit of a latecomer to this movie. But uh, I probably saw it in 2019, maybe even 2020, during the pandemic. I finally checked this movie out. I believe I watched this movie in 2019, right after Midsommar. I saw that film uh, right when it came out, and I thought it was fantastic. And I just went, what else has this guy done? And I looked at his filmography, and I went, oh, he's only done one other movie. Okay, I've heard of this movie, Hereditary. I guess I'll check it out. So I think I watched them both the same week. Um, it was a pretty terrifying week on my end. But yeah, I wish I saw this in theaters in 2018. I saw this at the, uh, during the pandemic. I... I uh, didn't really have anything else to do. So um, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to check out Hereditary. I remember it just changing my life for a good year. Like, like it's definitely, it's a mind-blowing film. Yeah, so for those that haven't seen the film, uh, which I feel like most film lovers have seen it, but maybe people are kind of avoiding horror films, and this is one of the more terrifying ones. Uh, Joe, did you want to maybe give a quick... 30 second explanation description maybe a pitch to the movie to kind of maybe convince people to go check it out it is a terrifying film but if you look deeper than that it, you know it's really a family drama just with uh you know it's got jump scares it's it's got a it, there is a psychological terror in there but it's it's a family drama I mean, that's what I got out of it. I, I, my third time seeing this movie, I watched it with my parents. It's, it's, it's a great family film the whole family can enjoy. Yeah, I think that's what makes Hereditary work well in regards to horror compared to, you know, the, the horror films I mentioned previously, Conjuring, Annabelle, etc. Uh, just because mm. it is a family drama. Like, this movie also seems to have a lot of emotional stakes with these characters. Like, that's half the horror. Half the horror is... Uh, being in a tough family relationship, you know, the jump scares are equally as terrifying, but that dinner scene between Tony Collette and her son is just as horrifying as spirits and ghouls and goblins who would see another horror film. Oh, yeah. And, and real quick, I, I, prob I probably shouldn't suggest that uh, entire families uh, don't see this, uh, see this film. It's not for the little kids. But, uh, yeah, that dinner scene, I think that's the scene where a lot of people pointed to this and said, where is Tony Collette's Oscar? Yeah, yeah. surprisingly, she didn't get the Oscar, or let alone... It's nomination. not surprising. Yeah. It's not surprising. Yeah, but mm. yeah, that was definitely the scene that you would point to and go, yeah, that, that's, a, that's an award-winning performance. Like, she's just... Yeah. She's incredible. She really is. So you did briefly mention your first experience with it being in 2020. Did you watch it by yourself the first time, or did you watch it with a group of friends? I watched it by myself. That's a good way to watch it the first time. 
So, uh, what would you say your favorite scene is? Is there a scene that really sticks out to you? I feel like the film has plenty of uh, terrifying moments or iconic shots, uh, but is there one that really comes to mind when you think of the film? Oh, um, yeah, like you're saying, a lot of scenes stand out. If I had to pick one, if, if there's one when I think of the movie, you gotta go with the, the Charlie scene. Yeah. What's crazy about the Charlie scene is it happens, what, 40 minutes into the film? I feel like it happens very early on. Like, you think this is going to be like a Checking it out last I think it's like a half hour. Even reaching the half hour point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's shocking. I thought she was going to be like the central character or one of the big bads at the very end of the film. And uh, 30 minutes in, it's already good. You know, chaos is already happening. And I think the element of surprise is what makes that work. And the trailer is what makes you think that Charlie is going to be a big, a big part of the film, because the trailer really focuses on her and the, uh, the clicking noise. Yeah, the click. Forever, forever ruined the click. And I think it plays into that. You know, you hear the clicking noise. I think that's like the iconic noise of the, the entire horror film, and it, and it drops pretty quickly in the movie uh, for obvious reasons. So I think it plays into all the tropes we yeah. expect from a horror film and kind of flips it on its head. And then the last half is just something the audience isn't even going to be predicting. Uh, and I think Midsommar has the same kind of style where you kind of think you know where things are going and it really starts to flip on its head near the end. I think that's what works well, not necessarily just with Aster, but any horror film. I feel like the unpredictability is what makes these films feel scary. This film is definitely a good example. Again, with Midsommar, another discussion for another day, but uh, just another Ari Aster film, really. I, I do think Hereditary might be the more complete film, but Midsommar also has a lot of great ideas in there as well. I've rewatched every film for this 2018 discussion, except for two, um, and, and this is one of the two that I didn't bother rewatching because I feel like, I don't know, I don't know if it's just me, but I don't need to rewatch another Aster film. I've seen it once, and it sticks to me. Like I, I'm not gonna forget a single scene from this movie. So I haven't rewatched either, I, and I don't know which one I like. I really love them though. So for those that haven't seen the film, uh, it's essentially a family drama, as we said, uh, completely drenched in horror between four members of the family. Uh, is there like one from the family that you like the most? Is it Tony Collette? I feel like that's kind of the default answer. Is there one that you kind of? you know, like a hidden gem you really like the rest of the family? Um, yeah, I actually don't think I would go with Tony Collette here. Um, I think, um, I mean, she makes the movie, but I feel like a lot of this, a lot of the, um, especially the second half of the movie, a lot of the second half of the movie kind of revolves around Peter's character. And, uh, and I think Alex Wolf is also very underrated in this movie. Um, it really stands out to me as well. It's uh, it, it's tough call between him and Tony, but I'd say Peter is uh, who's standing out to me in this family. The Alec Wolf character is interesting because he's the lead character and he's essentially the main focal point of this movie. But when you walk out of the theater, everybody talks about Tony Collette. Like I feel like that's really tough for mm-hmm. Alex Wolf because if he was not phenomenal in this movie this this movie would just sink like this movie would just would not be as impactful because we're kind of following it through his perspective yeah it is shocking that he's really not as big of a standout as it really is 
he's really good in the movie and everyone talks about Tony Collette. You know, it's a little unfair mm-hmm. for poor Wolf. It really is. But everyone in this movie is is great. It's it's just really great casting there. Um I can even give a Gabriel Byrne shout out. And Dowd. You know, just top to bottom, this cast uh really stands out. Well, I think what Hereditary has over Ms. Mar is a little bit more character development. Um, mm-hmm. Characters stand out so well to me, and in, in, like they stand out so much in Hereditary. Uh, Miss Amar, uh, outside of Danny's character, I'm not sure if if her friends are nearly as well defined. I don't know if that's a if that's a um, a hot opinion, but uh, a hot take, but. Uh, no, that's actually a really I feel good like, point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's actually a pretty fair point because Midsommar is really the Danny show, which is kind of like every horror film, really. Like, there's one lead character faced off against this outside evil that they need to stop. Uh, and Danny is kind of like that token hero in the Midsommar film. While Hereditary is different, where almost every character, uh, you kind of have a lot of layers to them. You have a lot of information about who they are and where they stand in this family and i think that's what makes the the dinner scene in particular and a lot of other scenes feel so emotional and so raw because everybody in that table you know how they all feel and so it makes it more dramatic right like if danny was sitting at a table with all those other guys that showed up at the cult party um you know you would only get danny's point it's her show while while hereditary they, they definitely share the wealth that's what makes this a drama like you said, cloaked in, in a horror. What other horror movie has the dinner scene? Samar doesn't have that dinner scene. It doesn't need it. It's, that's more of a horror movie. That's a folk horror movie. Horatio's got a lot of iconic shots. I think that's what also helps keep it in the, in the zeitgeist, I guess, where everybody remembers uh, the guy on fire. Everybody remembers Colette like, hanging on the roof. Like, there's just so many... Aiming her head, yeah, exactly. her head on scene. I yeah. love that part. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah th- that was the creepiest shot of the whole movie. I was like uh-huh. fucking terrified mm-hmm. when she did that. It was so good. So I think that's what helps make this movie uh, stay so relevant, right? It's been about five years, close to, and I think people still remember Hereditary. Like people still talk about this. It's one of the best horror films of the decade, and I think it's because of the shot. You were scared when she was banging her head. Uh, I was laughing my ass off, but that, that might have been the third time. I think the first time I was pretty scared. Yeah, yeah, it, it is hilarious. Anything else you wanted to say about Hereditary before we wrap it up here? Uh, anything else we haven't really addressed? That's a good question. I feel like we haven't really gotten into the movie yet. This has gone so, this has gone so well. Um, let me think. Quentin, I feel like we need to talk about this ending. I definitely didn't know what to make of the ending when I first saw it. Yeah, the ending really threw me in for a loop when I first watched it. And I haven't rewatched it since, so honestly, um, I still have no fucking idea really what the ending's supposed to do, but it, kind of, it, it adds to the fucking terror of it and just what the fuck is going on. But uh, for those that haven't seen the film, uh, maybe you just skip ahead uh, a couple of minutes, so we'll make this brief. But yeah, Joe, do you want to like talk, go through what the fuck happened in the last 10 minutes of this movie? Okay, so I feel like we, uh, we're, we're at a point in the movie where 
we we really haven't fully recovered from seeing Tony bang her head on the wall. So um, then we've got Peter. He's out in the yard. He sees his treehouse. He goes in the treehouse. Um, and I believe there are are there not corpses, but they're they're these are uh, yeah these are headless corpses. He sees headless corpses of his mom and his grandma, and uh, and then we see Charlie with a crown on her head that's uh, on her on her severed head that's uh, on a mannequin's body. It definitely definitely gets pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, to say the least. Um yeah. probably the one scene I would use as an example to maybe not have a family night with your little kid. Uh, oh. get a scar on. Yeah, it was uh it, it visually is just it, it's it's a mix of beauty and horror. Like it's it's so beautiful looking and yet utterly terrifying in every aspect. Uh is it's it's quite quite an ending, really. It really it really sticks with you. But it almost makes you feel good. Like in this movie, it's almost it almost works as a kind of a happy ending. Yeah, it's definitely edited like victory. Woo! Yeah, we did it. Yeah, okay. like he's found his. It feels like he's found his home, which you know is comparable to Midsommar. That's how. Um, again, I mean, I'm sorry. Spoiler warning. I mean that's. Midsommar ends in a similar way where you feel that the character is kind of, she feels like she's where she belongs and, and, and everything, everything just feels complete. And, uh, that kind of vibe, even though it's objectively horrifying. Look forward to every, every A24 movie that's coming out now. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on Quinn. Of course. Of course. All right. Uh, see you later, guys. That's the end of our 2018 Best of the Year podcast. I believe now we're moving into the Oscar season, so probably won't be revisiting 2017 until maybe early next summer. So if you do have a 2017 film that you want to reach out to me for, you're welcome to come on and appear for the next podcast for the 2017 edition. Until then, have a great day.